welcome back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. This is Beep. You can find me at Beepsplain on Twitter. Today's podcast is about Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, Episode 4. Just a reminder, this is a re-watch podcast, so we have spoilers from the top to the bottom. We talk about the story and context of the entire series, so please make sure you've seen it all before you come and join us. You can find the podcast itself at our website, streamingbanshees.com, or on Twitter at TV Banshees. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. You can find me at A Capital Chuck. And today we have our first guest. Please welcome Emma. Hello. Who is such a gift to the Spangirl community, editing videos of all kinds of things. It's just incredible. We love you so much. But tell us a little bit about you. Okay, so I'm Emma. You can find me at Emma B underscore videos, usually on Twitter, um, yelling about K-dramas, mostly posting videos of just anything that my heart desires, really, which I actually have CC to blame for because um, <laughs> we, we, your we, tweets we are crash landing on you. <laughs> yeah. It made me start my first K-drama, and I think I've watched... 40 since then. Wow, that's true. All three of us started at first meeting each other watching post-apocalyptic sci-fi drama. <laughs> now we're all now we're fully, I don't know if the world is terrible. So we're fully on the K-drama <laughs> train. Yep. It's been quite the fangirl journey through different shows, but <laughs> I think Chloe was a lot of people's freshman show over the past couple of years, too. Yeah, it's such a good one. Well, to start so off good. with. Yeah, yeah. And people, if people listening, if if Emma B video sounds familiar to you, it's because Emma has made many phenomenal edits specifically for Hometown Cha Cha Cha, including that one you did at the end of the series that like breaks me about both Asian and Chi Fong's journey. But the one that we that went viral overnight is the thirst edit to end all thirst edits of Hong Du Sheik. And it was like, we went to bed and we woke up and it was like 11,000 likes overnight. It was insane. So fun. That was wild. I remember I, I think I made it in just a couple hours. It was something that I threw together. I was like, Oh, this is going to be fun. It's just going to be a total thirst at it. And then it just went banana. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun, though, when people respond in that way and you're just kind of like, hey, I just enjoyed this and people are explode over it. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm never going to think of that Doja Cat song the same way ever again. Uh, <laughs> and we'll link to that. We can link to that in our show notes. So, Emma, why do you love Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha specifically? Well, so I didn't really know what it was about when I started it, but I think the first thing I liked about it was just how summery it was because it aired at the end of August, beginning of September. And it was just like summer was like, I don't want its last legs. It was going out. And Ultra was just so cozy and summery. And I felt like I got to extend that summer feeling for a little while. And the first few episodes were just so fun. It kind of reminded me of Gilmore Girls, which is one of my favorite all-time shows. Just the, like, small-town shenanigans of it all. And there's a character in that that works at, like, every establishment in town. 
a running gag. And then <laughs> Cheap Hung around town, just working everywhere. I thought it was just so funny. And then, of course, later on, it's going to rip your heart out about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's not as just like cute and fun as it seems. But yeah, just from the beginning, it was really fun. And then it was just a, an amazing fan experience on Twitter, kind of group watching it. It was like a super active fandom and people were just losing their minds every week. And we had like a super active group chat about it. <laughs> like a support group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which like might have been started after this episode. I think so. And I watched this show because of you. So it comes full circle. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was after the final scene and epilogue to this. We just basically were like screaming and yeah into a group chat that's this episode was definitely a turning point yeah yeah this was the episode for me i know you mentioned i think you mentioned the last podcast that that was the episode for you but yeah this was the one where i was like oh this is a problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah as you were re-watching stuff is anything new kind of struck you i think just clocking all those little details is really impressive because I, I remember watching the first time and you didn't know anything, but you knew there was some stuff under the surface that you didn't know about. And just kind of trying to analyze all those small reactions and just the looks on people's faces. And going back now and kind of being able to map what they're probably thinking, like what's hitting with their backstories. That's pretty cool to be able to go back and see that and kind of get a different experience. Yeah, it's something that I want to ask you guys specifically throughout this episode, because I feel like there's a lot of what do you think was going through this person's mind, you know, now that we know everything about them. So I wanted to chat about some big picture themes before we kind of jump into scene by scene. And the first thing that really struck me watching this episode in particular is Chief Hong's line. We live in a society. And I think overall, this, sh this show, at, at, in terms of the series, from beginning to end, is, is sort of a look at and a love letter to community or society, almost as if it as an ideal, like how it should operate. But I don't know if you guys had any thoughts about this episode in particular is almost an ideal of how a community should support in spe like specifically two women in a sexual harassment situation. The thing that struck me rewatching it was the scene where the creepy guy calls the cops <laughs> and you just get mm -hmm. this like hit in your stomach. <laughs> yeah. Um, watching the guy at the station answer it and just like, oh, this guy's being framed. We got to go. And you're just like, oh, no, this is going to be such a mess after the last mess that Heijin just had. <laughs> and here's another mess. And it didn't turn out that way. And it was more of a supportive response to it, which you don't always get with sexual harassment. So that was more of an ideal way of some, like a way that situation would be handled. Yeah. And everybody, everybody has a chance to step up in their own way from Gamri through Yu Chol, who's the police officer, through obviously Chief Hong, but particularly the women step up for each other 
and and to the sexual predator. And so it's kind of the way everything plays out. It's it's the women have a chance to stand up for themselves first. And then everyone in the community, men and women, have their back. And you get to the end and you're like, oh, this is how it should work. You know, the other the other thing I thought about is how this episode and kind of that's kind of like big picture society, right? On a smaller kind of micro level, the point that Chief Hong makes to Heijin about how many friends she has. This episode is sort of a love letter to her friendship with Mison, but also two new friendships. Her friendship with Chief Hong and this really delightful fangirl friendship with Jury, which is kind of this unlikely, you know, woman in her 30s and a teenager, but like bonding over something that they both love. And it, it when you rewatch it, you sort of realize that she's really sort of taking his advice to heart and our one of our two hedgehogs is really kind of reaching out here in different ways. And she she does it almost as a kind of struck me how much of an introvert she is. So it's always one on one. I love the focus on friendship in this show that obviously, you know, ultimately it's a romantic comedy, but it's not only what you consider that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I feel like that's been so dismissed, especially in the United States, as kind of a viable form of storytelling. And but however, in other shows, when you do have the romance, that's the only focus. And so I love mm-hmm. that they make not only these unlikely friendships, but that they get focus. I mean, none of this had to happen for the for the story to come across the way it did. But it does add to not only the enjoyment of it, but to adding more dimensions to each and every character. Yeah, because and it's not only our, you know, obviously as an audience, we're most invested in our two lead characters and having our lead characters have these friendships, right? Having Heijin have this sort of unlikely fangirl flailing friendship that's kind of burgeoning in this episode with Jury makes us more invested in Jury. But but there's other side conversations, right? Like when Ha Zhang has sort of that side conversation with the grocery store owner, Yun Kyung, they're talking about being moms and and being pregnant. And the camera is kind of like moving in and out as what beep you often call Ganjin like this organism. And everyone is not only fully realized, but there's just these like relationships and friendships, even if it's sort of like frenemies between Nam Suk and Ha Zhang, right? I mean, there's just so many different friendships and relationships that this episode has a lot of balls in the air that are either the main characters, but also among all of the side characters. To that end, one of the things that kind of struck me is the song that Chief Hong sings in the cafe scene that's called Old Love is a really, is really interesting to think about now when we think about the song that director G sings in episode 14. And the first line of that song is, it takes new love to forget old love. And Beep, with respect to what you were saying, that it's not just romantic love, right? There's a lot of losses and aches that these characters are carrying around that are French, like friends that have died, family members that have died, romantic relationships that didn't work out. And one of the lines that Shin Ha-un included 
in the screenplay for Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha is a quote from Thoreau, there is no remedy for love but to love more, which also reminds me of that WandaVision quote about what is grief but love enduring. And the show is basically positing that the only thing that's going to make it better is not to hole up in your cabin by yourself forever, but is to reach out and form these new relationships. And it's happening, you know, this episode obviously begins with Heijin and Chief Hong. At least from Heijin's perspective, she's starting to reach out and starting to talk about her grief and connecting with him, even if he's kind of playing defense a lot in this episode. And it's kind of painful to watch him do it. It is interesting that they're both dealing with grief and they do have to both get out of their shells in different ways. And in the beginning, it seems like Chief Hong is doing that because he's out in the community. He has got a lot of uh, relationships, acquaintances. He's active. And so he kind of puts on this air that he is doing that. And he is scolding Haitian, saying that she needs to be doing all these things. Um, but at the end of the day, he hasn't actually come out of his shell at all. He isn't really connected with anyone. He's still hiding all that stuff about himself. So it's just kind of this front. And they both, in the end, need to come out together to be able to connect with each other in these ways and share these parts of themselves. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting thread because one of one of the things that I love about this show is that it's about real intimacy. And the end of this episode in particular is an example of, you know, we have a lot of really fun kind of romantic moments in this show, and those are important too and are really, really fun to watch. But it's really these kinds of really grounded, almost feel, they feel like real conversations between people who are kind of, you know, stopping and starting, opening up, pulling back, that is really sort of the emotional journey between our two main characters, but, you know, also runs parallel with a lot of the other secondary characters as well. Emma, since you and I were in each other's DMs for months analyzing this show, one of the things that I love about episode four in particular is it is such a perfect example of the way this show perfectly executed the slow burn it's like a treasure hunt of oh they're thinking about each other oh they're kind of being snarky but missing what the other one is like around right and and it's just it's like a treasure hunt of of trying to piece together what was this person thinking why did this person react this way that's just basically like all of the breadcrumbs that shen haun is laying around particularly with Chief Hong, because she keeps him kind of veiled from the audience, like his emotional interior life. I feel like we know a lot more about what's going on with Heijin and where her head is at than maybe Chief Hong in the beginning. Yeah, I this episode in particular, it just shows that like hyper awareness that you have of another person when you're in that early stage of a crush and you're just looking for every sign of them. Even if it's just catching them across the street in the morning, you are just dying for that kind of fix. And that's where they both seem to be at, whether or not they're aware of it. 
And I mean, part of that for Heijin, outside of a romantic interest, I think she does kind of view him as a bit of a crutch in the community. It's like the only person outside of Misoan that she knows is friendly to her, even if they have the bit of the kind of bantery thing going on. He is looking out for her and she knows that. So it's kind of her only friend. Well, she hasn't really connected too much with other people yet, but that just that sense of they're looking out for each other and they don't quite know how to act around each other. They'll say one thing, but then they immediately do the opposite thing. Yeah. <laughs> we have with Chief Hong's like, you don't know yourself that well. I was like, dude, pot, meat, kettle. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, oh, I, I I, won't deliver. You got to pay me this money. And she's like, okay, bye. And then he's like, he delivers it for free anyways. And then she's like, I hate being honest and open. And then proceeds to be honest and open. <laughs> yep. Which yeah, like they, they just, it's act, making them act in a way that they don't expect. And it's fun watching them try to keep their cool with that. Yeah, well, that so that takes us to the opening montage. Hey, Miss Dentist, <laughs> over and over. And I, Emma, I'd love to hear your thoughts just as a video editor because this, it's it's so elegant in how much it lets us know about how much they are becoming a part of ev- each other's, you know, everyday routine. But it's also visually so colorful and telling us so much about what Chi Pong's doing every day <laughs> and all his different jobs. Yeah, it's so fun. It's just so colorful. And it does kind of get like serve the purpose of showing that time has been passing. She's farther away from that kind of big blow up <laughs> with the speakerphone. In the previous episode, which, by the way, in rewatch, I had to skip that scene. I did. <laughs> oh, no, you did. <laughs> I can't watch it again. It's too painful. <laughs> but showing that, like, okay, she's been there. She's more established. And going into this episode, people are less prickly with her. She's still, like, needs to establish herself. But I think for the most part, they've kind of let it go. But <laughs> so, it, so it shows the purpose that. Time has passed. I don't know how long, but and her outfits are so fun. It's just like her personal runway to us every morning and all of his crazy job outfits. (laughs) And I just love the Miss Dentist. Oh, my God. It's so funny. It's I mean, I. Yeah, but it's also I remember there was I forget what T American TV critic talked about and she was specifically referencing squid game but just about how visually colorful the palette is so varied with with a lot of shows coming from south korea whereas shows from the united states have been kind of drained of color for so long you know it are just dark Right. I mean, we've got Game of Thrones where you can't even see what's going on on the screen. Right. And so I think this montage, you know, even though this is a show that is, you know, it's not it's not sort of high fantasy like King Eternal Monarch. Right. But but even though this show is grounded very much in the real world, this sort of aqua door and the colorful outfits going back and forth, it's just such a visually like eye popping sequence that I always think of when people talk about just sort of how visually stunning and dynamic TV coming from South Korea is right now. I think of this montage because 
it really didn't have to be as sort of colorful and fun to watch, right? You know, it's like 30 seconds, but it's just really, really pretty to look at and is really sort of like clever in everything that it lets us know, particularly that Heijin is super looking forward to seeing Chief Hong every morning. <laughs> The morning that we see her at her apartment and she's waiting for Misan to get dressed, she is reconsidering what, what both Bo Ra and Chief Hong said about the hedgehog theory. And she's looking at the hedgehog and she says to herself, no, we're not similar. I was curious if you guys had any thoughts about that, sort of about how well she knows herself, who's the real hedgehog in this story. <laughs> Any thoughts about that? Because I, th I thought it was like an interesting moment because she's kind of rejecting what Ch Chief Hong's assessment of her at this point. Yeah, I think they are externally at this point very different. So I can see why she thinks that even though they are coping with the same kind of pain, their way of doing so is just so different. I think about that quote in the first episode misone says that her life motto what was it It was like don't be nosy put myself first she said that that's haitian's life motto and chief Hans could basically be be extremely nosy and put myself last so they're they are those like complete opposites yeah but as they talk about at the end they are in similar climates like the polar bear and the penguin so it's like even though the way that they act is different they're in the same climate dealing with the same things. Yeah. And, you know, I thought a lot about the confession scene at the end of episode 10 in some ways as a continuation of a conversation they begin at the end of this episode about the penguin and the polar bear, right? But what I thought, what, what kind of struck me as I was rewatching this episode in particular is when Heijin says we have different blood types, different personalities, the personalities part is what really struck me as I was watching this because Hei Jin is an introvert and Chief Hong is an extrovert, right? With the way she sort of just like withers into herself when she's at this table with people being loud and talking that she doesn't know and drinking and she just is, is like, ugh, get me out of here, really kind of hit me a different way. Maybe the first time it was a little bit like, you know, I mean, the show definitely present, presents her with having a lot of sort of issues with sort of like class and coming from the city. But she really is an introvert and she does connect with people. It's just usually when it's a one on one conversation, particularly in this episode, whether it's with Jury or Chief Hong. But she doesn't she kind of crashes and burns every time she's in these like big group conversations it like doesn't really go well for her at all one of the other little pieces of foreshadowing that i thought was interesting is that she tries to pet the hedgehog and then she gets pricked and i i thought i'm like wow that's like a great foreshadowing for what's going to happen after this episode <laughs> because she's going to sort of put herself out there right she's going to kiss him in that moment, he's going to kiss her back and both of our hedgehogs are going to get pricked in different ways <laughs> because the next morning she's not going to remember it and she's going to be very insulting about why they wouldn't be a good match. And then when she finally realizes what happens, 
he's going to pretend not to remember and he's going to emotionally pull back and be like, no, 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 we're just friends. And so I thought that that was a really kind of like, mm, that's what that's what happens sometimes when you reach out, right? You get you get stung. <laughs> so we have this montage to sort of establish the routine. Heijin is walking with Misone. And she's like, where is Chief Hong? <laughs> and she's so transparent. <laughs> it's so bad. What should we order for lunch? Maybe the last thing that I saw him carrying as a delivery man. <laughs> Was it really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the the little box that he swings around. That's why she's oh, like. I didn't even catch that. Oh, yeah. That's why she's like, let's order that for lunch. And me sounds like, dude, we, we're like not even at work yet. And you're talking about ordering lunch. And then she's immediately depressed when it's his day off and he wasn't the one to deliver it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just like watching her and it's like, I don't know what what's happening here, but it's something. <laughs> she hasn't quite figured it out yet, but she will. Yeah. And I love that one of the things, too, that I realized is like so great is when she's kind of taking the takeout bags out and is like visibly depressed that he wasn't her crush wasn't there to deliver it. She says he's always around when you least expect it. So where is he today? And I'm like, girl, he's going to be running barefoot in a wetsuit in your office by the end of this episode. So there's all these little pieces of like foreshadowing that are so fun. One of them is that we get our first glimpse at Director G in the magazine. Did you catch what Mi Song said about him after they sort of fill the audience in that, you know, he's a friend from college? Did you catch what she said? What did she say? When it's not meant to be, it's just not meant to be. Yeah. That'll prove to be true for him, unfortunately. Well, I mean, eventually, but in the, in, in the short term, that'll prove to be true for him. Yeah, when it comes to Exactly. But I love that there's all, there's there's many lines that Shen Ha-un kind of folds in. One of them later on is when everybody who works on the TV show is like, well, we'll save that twist for the end. That's kind of meta, right? It's kind of like Shin Ha-un winking at the audience. I'm, on rewatch, I was like, oh, that was a clue that I never should have been in your DMs worried about this love triangle. <laughs> she was letting me know that it was going to be all right from the beginning. So when, when this, oh, he gives me like, particularly on rewatch, when he, and he's asking all these questions, like, are there cameras in the room or the little hand touches? I just want to curl up in the fetal position. I think that this is a really, every, in an everyday way, very powerful sort of post-Me Too story. Were there particular things that, you know, we're all women here having this conversation. Were there particular things that kind of hit you that were like, oof, that's so real about the way this all unfolds? I think just being stuck at work in a situation like that. I used to work at a coffee shop and there were some regulars that you just dreaded when they walked in the door. Because you have to take their order, you're stuck there, you have to be friendly to them. And some people do just take that way too far. 
even I mean, not in such an extreme way, although I'm sure it happened happens luckily not to me but just in those small ways that men especially can be creepy yeah and just assume that your friendliness is interest or a reason to just hang around and pry and say things that are over the line so it is such a relatable thing as somebody who's like customer facing like that in some way where you just have to deal with the public that you will get unwanted attention sometimes it's horrible yeah like for me my sort of fist pump moment I remember the first time when I was like in my early 20s and I was going to defend my first deposition and I walked in a room it was all men all men over at least over 50 and just being the only woman in the room and everyone's at least 30 years older than me my opposing counsel said, oh, thank you for improving the scenery in the room. Uh. And it reminded me of when he's basically complimenting Heijin on how pretty she is. And she's like, well, I'd prefer to hear that I'm a good doctor. And I just like, she's so uh, resolutely feminist in an everyday way. The things that Heijin, you know, the lines that come out of Heijin's mouth that Shin Ha-un is writing, it, it should be so basic, right? <laughs> you know, but she says things that you're just like, yes, right? Or like later on when in the future episode where the cop is blaming Nam Suk, right? And she's like, why are you blaming the victim, right? There's just these like very should be if we're talking about what Chief Hong says, we live in a society, should be basic things that we all accept. But this episode is really kind of, uh, has really uncomfortable moments because I feel like most women can relate in one way or another to some of the things that happen to Misson in this episode or Heijin. Especially sort of, you know, as you were saying, like those crossing the line, you know, the way he kind of like, touches her hand unnecessarily when Misan hands something to him, you know, or he's sort of leveraging his wealth in a way. I mean, he clearly thinks, you know, he does it subtly, basically to Heijin, like, oh, well, you don't have to worry about it. I can pay for everything. And then he sort of like takes liberties because of that and absolutely thinks he can get away with it because of his financial position. Did you have any thoughts about, I, I mean, just sort of tracing through sort of the feminist threads of this episode, I thought the conversation about Bo Ra and how there's this little girl that does not express herself, quote unquote, like as typical little girls do. You know, she's not wearing dresses, singing Frozen. She's chasing after the boys and playing and, and doing Taekwondo that I thought was really great and very like subtle. It's like a side conversation. Yeah. I mean, I was that little girl. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> where I shopped in like the boys section and my mom hated it. She was not pleased. But yeah, I always had the more boy centric interests or sports. I played baseball, was not into girly things whatsoever until later in life. You kind of grow into a rounded person. But <laughs> so yeah, I definitely could relate to Bora. And yeah, Haitian is so brave in that she can say those things because they do seem simple, it's, but it can be so hard to push back, even if it's just that tiny little bit. 
can be much easier to just kind of laugh it off or move on and try not to rock the boat. So even something as small as that kind of resolute statement can be so hard to say out loud sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And Ha Zhang is she's she's a one like I she's like my mom hero in this show. She's so wonderful. But she also is like, you know, those little girls are the ones that end up like running the world. <laughs> so, you know, like and I think it's like an interesting preview to how open minded she is about many things, particularly as we're going to meet two old loves that are introduced in this episode. And so there's just a lot of very subtle, very either progressive or feminist thoughts that come out of these wonderful female characters' mouths that I just really, I I mean, I appreciated it, you know, definitely on first watch, but there's just, this show has so many wonderful female characters and I just don't take that for granted, (laughs) you know, because we don't always get that. Um. So that that takes us to uh, Heijin. As soon as she hears that Chief Hong is treasurer of the, the business association, I will be there. Girl has it bad. Talk to me about sort of this whole dynamic. We'll we'll we're gonna put Chief Hong's indie folk singer debut to the side for a moment, but because <laughs> I lost my mind. But Emma, any sort of big picture thoughts about what's happening at this table and sort of all the little micro interactions that are going on? Yeah, so I totally get that. So I'm, I definitely relate to Asian as the more introverted person who struggles in those social situations sometimes, which much rather just kind of hide at home. And, but when you do have this like, I mean, it's crazy what a crush can do to you and the things that it makes you do. And kind of <laughs> like she shows up to this thing she would never go to. And you can tell she immediately regrets it. And it's like, <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> I hate this. And then she just goes to sleep, which is my go-to move as well. <laughs> well, what I love about her quote-unquote killer move about pretending to pass out is she's going to end the episode actually passed out drunk at somebody's <laughs> house. And I'm like, well, if that's your, it is actually a killer move. <laughs> you are going to, you know, kiss this guy and end up waking up next to him the next morning. <laughs> but she's going to do that like three more times. <laughs> it is, in fact, your killer move, Heijin. <laughs> I love, you know, one of the things that it, it's the acting, but it's also the directing and the editing. And and I, I'm curious, sort of your thoughts. I think the editing in this show is so good because it's like they have these re- this pair of really wonderful actors in Shin Min Na and Kim Sun Ho that just have great chemistry and are really both in their acting and clearly in their directing by Yu Jae Wan. It's all the little things. It's the he when he walks up to a table and there's four empty chairs, he picks the chair next to her. It's the way that she looks at him when he agrees with her that divorce is just as normal as getting married and we shouldn't be judgmental about it. It's the way he watches her leave to go to the bathroom or the way she's wondering where he is when he comes back. These are all the little clues that are this meticulously built slow burn 
that as an audience member, if you're super invested in them, you're like tracking all of it. It just catches like one thing is you have actors that are capable of doing it, but then you have to have the editing that mines all of it, right? And pieces it together to tell that story. There's so many of those little moments and glances and just the like feeling of them being aware of the other person and (laughs) trying to come off like they don't care at all. (laughs) It is so many of those little details that gave us plenty to squeal over while watching it. I mean, there's a scene, all those scenes that you mentioned, and then there's a scene in a later episode where they're at Gamry's house and they're sitting next to each other, but their backs are just kind of leaning on each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I remember just losing my mind over that tiny little detail. It wasn't a point at all, but it was just like, look how casually they're touching each other. It's almost like a play in that there's always things going on that seem organic, as if people are just in a room or sitting around a table that the camera isn't necessarily focusing on, but they're so in character and the director has such a like, mastery of here's all the other things that are going on with all the other characters who aren't necessarily the ones delivering the dialogue, but it's still telling a story. As I'm saying it, it sounds basic, but it is not, it does not happen in all TV shows, if that makes sense, you know, right? Like that there's so much to pay attention to going on around people that are not, that are not necessarily the two people that are the ones delivering the dialogue in the moment. Yeah. I mean, because there's, The things that you're picking up as an audience about the community, as they're talking about the divorce of Ha-jung and uh, Young-guk. But the main point is that kind of tension between them. So it's like you're picking up all this background stuff, but the real like main focus of the scene is how they're almost entirely focused on each other. I mean, he comes in and and he's immediately like, responding to what she's saying and kind of trying to antagonize her about that. And then it's backing up what she's saying. And then it's kind of clocking each other as they're moving room. And so it's just like they are kind of have drowned everyone else out and are almost just entirely focused on the other person. Yeah, it's like they're in orbit in or around one another. Like there's all this stuff going on, but they are constantly aware of what the other one is doing. And that's true in the direction of their scenes, even when they're fighting. Because <laughs> there's a later meeting where they're basically not on speaking terms. And yet it's almost like the opposite. They're constantly like looking at one while the other's not looking or looking away, right? It's just a really subtle, really masterfully acted, but edited, right? Because it's it's also just piecing together all of those moments with a very careful eye. One of the things that I love sort of about this slow burn is that I think we have all been watching TV long enough to kind of understand that the rules of romantic storytelling are that they're going to be apart for a certain amount of time before you're finally going to give the audience what they want, right? And sometimes the obstacles to get there can seem artificial or kind of thrown in at the last minute. And that's when a show can kind of lose the magic of that, of that slow burn. What I think is so great about hometown cha-cha-cha and is really sort of established 
it's established in the beginning, but it's really starts to get fleshed out in this episode, is their two main sources of conflict are Haitians' discomfort with and not understanding Chief Hong's lifestyle and lack of career <laughs> and his reticence to open up and his walls that become very clear at the end of this episode every time she tries to like ask him a question. And you have it built into, you know, sort of this like, she's like, where have you been all day? And he's like, it's my day off. And she's like, you sure have it easy. Live like me if you're jealous. <laughs> like, you know, and so there's just this back and forth, but they're building sort of like her, you know, even some of their banter is kind of letting, is kind of previewing for the audience. Like, this is going to be, it's going to be a thing that they have to work out, you know? Yeah. They just keep judging each other on their own personal standards. Mm. When, I mean, she's judging him based off of how much money he makes and the way he works. It's not a traditional career in the way that she would expect or want out of a partner. And he's judging her by the way that she isn't so willing to join the community in all the ways that he does when they're both on just very extreme spectrums. And in the end, they kind of find their happy medium between them. Yeah, that's a really good point because they are actually being very judgmental of each other and also always feel compelled to say so, which is remarkable. <laughs> like, they, neither of them have an internal edit when it comes to the other at all. All right, Emma, talk to me about she's pretending to be passed out drunk. The lights go on and it's Chief Hong. I'm sorry, I'm Gen X. He's like in a plaid flannel shirt holding a guitar, like singing a song. I I just like lost my mind when the scene happened. <laughs> How did it, you feel about it? It was too much for me. I can't handle a serenade. <laughs> it's really too much, like bordering on the line of like, I just want to like crawl under my blanket. Pretend it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god right and i love the the whole thing i mean particularly one of the things that is so delightful when you rewatch all of this is is that now we know that he knows the whole time that she's faking it mm -hmm. so every time she can't help she's so as she says at the end fascinated she can't help but like she's like a little kid pretending to be asleep you know, and she can't help but like peek and then he'll catch her and then she'll like put her head down. Like it's so ridiculous. And he's so amused and he's just sort of like he's catching her like every time. I mean, he knows the whole time that she's faking it, which you kind of like maybe got a sense. But maybe at the end he thought, no, no, no. He knows that she's pretending the entire time. One of the things that's really fun to pick up on with respect to the thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the two songs that are not, that are, you know, existing songs that weren't written for Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha from that, you know, he sings here and then director G sings in episode 14. This song, An Old Love, is a really famous song by a Korean singer, Lee Moon Say. And the lyrics are so interesting 
particularly with the what the editing chooses to focus on with each lyric. I hadn't picked up on any of this and it wasn't until I was kind of going through the notes and I was like, oh my God. And then especially with the song later on and how well they pair. And of course they do, but it's just one of those things that I don't think to look into. <laughs> so glad that you do. <laughs> I go down these rabbit holes. Yeah. Well, so, so this song is, is the, the name of the song is An Old Love. This is not only an episode that introduces both Hei Jin's old love, director Ji, but also Young Gook's old love, Cho Hee. But then we have sort of this circle, right? Because Ha Jung is Cho Hee's first love, right? So you, this is an episode that is introducing two love triangles, both, both of which will subvert our expectations wonderfully in very different ways. But, you know, it's the title of the song that is previewing these new characters that are going to be brought in by the end of the episode that are setting up our two love triangles in the show. But also, love and sort of a, a broader term, the lyrics of the song are that Chief Hong sings, Without anyone knowing, I hung around and cried. Past moments sank deep into my heart. The camera in the editing are squarely on Chief Hong's face. And as he's singing those lyrics and the camera's on him and you think about him crying alone, past moments sank deep into my heart. I mean, that is many of the moments that we're going to see Chief Hong, whether it's when he's drunk alone outside in future episodes or looking at the picture of his friend that died. The camera then switches to Heijin where the lyric says, as the lights switched on. Obviously, that's what happened at the end of the last episode. I love that little sound you just made. But, but that's the lights. Oh, that, that is how, I mean, her eyes open up and she's looking at him during that lyric, during as he sings that lyric. It's obviously what just happened in the last episode when he returned her shoe. But it, I mean, she's going to be running down an alley and he's going to have a flashlight with the light switch on, right? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's like, a, you know, this repeated imagery of what he, I think what they bring to each other's lives, but what he brings into her life, right? Like what Beep said the last podcast is like the world's kind of on dim, right? Then the, there's a lyric, in regret and anger, tears drop from my eyes. The camera focuses on the the divorced couple, Ha Jung and Young Guk. And Young Guk, I mean, Ha Jung is focused on the stage. Young Guk, you can see kind of looking off into the distance. And then the camera is firmly back on Chief Hong for the final lyric. I once believed no one could hurt me, but was my past self all a lie? What I long for, I will keep as is inside my heart. Any thoughts on how that was his entire journey? <laughs> oh, I can't believe that I didn't know any of this. And it would have given us so much to theorize about this about at the time. But yeah, he does. He kind of buries that all up in his heart. And it just stays there and focused on the past and... But you just have that, like, oh, eventually the lights will switch on and things will kind of flip. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just such wonderful editing and obviously a meticulous selection of a song um, with the lyrics sort of previewing a lot of different characters' journey. And then when you sort of think about the song that they're going to use in the same way in episode 14, which is A New Love, and he's looking at Hei Jin and thinking about, okay, it's time that I got to rip off this Band-Aid and tell her. The editing and the song choice is just really wonderful. Talk to me about this walk home. I love that he knows that she's faking, still throws her on his back, (laughs) carries her through the town. (laughs) Yeah, I am impressed that she can just stay there. (laughs) (laughs) pretending <laughs> <laughs> to be asleep because picky back rides are never that wonderful no <laughs> I don't think it seem. it's actually very hard to stay up there but of course they make it look so dreamy and wonderful i know but i just he looks so it's so funny to me because it's like he the fact that he's doing this, knowing that she's faking, I mean, he's been carrying her for a while. And it's like, I, I mean, he's Jen is a tiny woman, but she's still an adult human that he's carrying on his back and just letting, he's just like quietly letting her get away with it until finally it's like too much because she's dropped the shoe. But it always the reason. Did you just want her to touch you for a little? <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. I mean, it is funny to me that like she has, was kind of doing all of these things to try ordering, ordering takeout and going to this like business association meeting just to like get a, you know, be able to see her crush. And now he's carrying her on his back. But it also should have been a clue. The only other person that he carries on his back is Gamri <laughs> and jokes about how much she weighs. So <laughs> should have been, I guess, a sign of, of, letting us know as many other things at the end of this episode that Chief Hong also has a thing for Hei Jen. They had this really interesting conversation where he says that we live in a society and then he asks her, how many friends do you have? <laughs> Ouch. And, and all she can say is me son three times, <laughs> but like three different ways. And, you know, I think we talked a little bit in the last podcast about how Heijin is this person who sort of clearly has all this love inside of her and hasn't really had a place to put it. But it really is, once you think about sort of her experience in university and how lonely she was and sort of how, I don't know, almost like a fish out of water she felt because maybe she wasn't as financially well off, right? And we even saw that in the last episode you know, with how competitive her her former classmates were at the wedding. It's really kind of lovely when you think about her journey and how many friends she's going to have by the end of this series. Yeah, I love their friendship, too. I think it's just like one of the most fun parts about <laughs> Misone is just such a, like, she steals the scene every time she's in a scene, I feel like. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, yeah. And the thing is, is that what I think is so interesting is he is like, you don't have any friends. You only have one friend. And what I think he's going to have a front row seat to by the end of the episode is that may be true. But that friendship, like, Heijin is an amazing friend. 
Like she really has her friends back, even if it were to come at a high personal cost to her and her business. She's willing. She has her friends back like when it matters. Whereas he has, right, his whole town, right? He's the hero of Ganjin, which we'll learn by the end of the episode. But nobody knows very basic things about him. And like five years of his life is like missing and nobody knows anything about him. So, you know, so it's like, okay, dude, well, you've got a lot of friends, but you keep everybody at arm's length. You know, like Heijin has a, may have only one friend, but that friend knows everything about her. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they have these very open conversations and Misong can just like tell everything that's going on in Heijin's head. And they are very open and honest with each other, which is more than he can say. So, Yeah, there's sort of this like, Obviously, they they have a lot of fun in this episode with this kind of snarky, a Philadelphia story-like banter. And, you know, he says, you're heavy as a rice sack. He's going to, of course, make us, like, swoon when he repeats that line later when they're dating. And he's carrying her, right, in, their, in, their bed, in his bedroom. But it's also just, like, there's all these other little ways that they let us know that, like, even though she's storming off annoyed at him she's immediately googling how much a rice sack weighs and he is like watching her walk away in those shoes and is kind of pleased wow she really likes them right because he's the one who gave them back to her it's like how she googled lake baikal yeah yep (laughs) exactly it was just like immediately after leaving a conversation she's just like googling what he said like, yeah. oh, what an insult or oh my gosh she likes me that much <laughs> yeah and she goes back I mean what's interesting is he basically is like you need to reach out to more people right and she's like annoyed and she but when she goes home the two things she does is she digs through to find the photograph of her and June to show jury and she puts her ear her <laughs> earphones in to listen to the song that he played that night. Like, you're really chill. She's not thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then, I mean, so one of the things that is kind of fun is like that. I mean, first of all, that's just like very intimate to be listening to that on your headphones alone. Like she is crushing really darn hard on him. But then it shows him... That that song she's listening to, the original recording of it, that he covered, he it's it cuts to him on his boat, and he's alone on his boat at night, pure like romanticism with a big R, right? Um, staring at the stars, and he's kind of like smiling and thinking to himself, and it's kind of one of those things you're like, huh? Wonder what you're thinking about, Chi Fong? He's under the sky. <laughs> yeah. And the lights flick on. He's got his headlamp on. Yeah. One of the other things that it sort of does with how it parallels often the show will pair scenes with different love triangles, neck like side by side. One will follow the other. A lot of times the editing will cut, for example, from Chief Hong to Cho Hee later on in the series to kind of let us know these are both two characters that have 
some deeper feelings that they need to say out loud to somebody that they care about. Here, they cut from one sort of bickering couple with feelings bubbling under the surface to an ex-husband and an ex-wife who are walking home. He hands her back all of the containers of food, and he, he mentions that he knows like what the day is tomorrow. And now you kind of can see that he wants to acknowledge that it's the anniversary of her mother's death, but he holds himself back from saying it. Yeah, I think that is relatable when you're, I don't know, on maybe rough terms with someone, but you still want, that urge is still there to be caring, but you, you're not really ready to give that inch quite yet. So it's just kind of this like very quiet way of still trying to care and show that you care. There's also a lot in this show about crossing the line. And I think that when you have a relationship like that, that has changed so much. I'm not sure, especially in their case, that they know where the line is right now. Yeah. I mean, he's very, you know, he and now we know that he was her mother's caretaker. So when she was sick in the hospital and so, you know, he puts the her favorite cake inside the container, but like can't bring himself to sort of verbally acknowledge that he knows that that anniversary is coming up, but he like need wants to acknowledge it in some way, but like can't find the words to do it. And all he can basically say is thank you for, for the cucumber kimchi. I enjoyed it. Right. And you're like, Oh, there's so much, there's so much more under the surface, which is basically the exercise of this entire episode, (laughs) whether it's these two talking or all these old loves being reintroduced or sort of the conversation at the end between Chi Pong and, and Heijin is like you, now we know what everybody's holding back. So Heijin runs into the cafe because she wants to find, I love when she's like, where's the girl who, who speaks rudely to adults. But she's so fired up to like prove prove this, and jury is not there, and we have the whole coffee delivery thing, Emma, which you mentioned, and this is like so amusing to watch because Haitian is definitely acting purposefully, like like she's trying to be cool and nonchalant, and you're like, you've just been like chasing seeing this guy all over town, right? <laughs> and now she's like, I mean, I guess I need coffee, whatever. And then he says, I get paid whenever I move. Do you guys have any thoughts about how much that is not true when it comes to her (laughs) in this episode? Yeah, I mean, he could have just let it go. But then he he brings that coffee over anyway for no reason. (laughs) Free delivery. I mean... (laughs) Free delivery from Chief Hong might as well be a declaration of love. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, it's not that you were just sitting there when it was slow and thinking about, oh, well, if I bring her coffee, I get to see her. <laughs> it also is, I mean, the whole exchange when Jury asks for coffee and he basically gives her a lecture down to like the milligrams of the daily allowance of caffeine. Can you imagine if Chief Hong was your dad? I'm like, it's so annoying. <laughs> It's so fun to watch. Um, (laughs) When she returns and you have this. All right. 
Beep didn't watch live. Emma, you did. I'm going to say the two lines and then I want you to describe why everybody lost their minds. When they have this kind of like very flirtatious, I'd rather not see you three times in one day. Likewise, so don't talk to me. Tell me what happened next, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This gift. This gift. (laughs) It's just like a trap that once you start watching it, you have to watch it like 50 times. It is the most absurdly charged a guy looking somebody up and down flirtatiously. It is ridiculous in the best way. (laughs) I think this gift could convince almost any woman on earth to watch the show. (laughs) Oh, my God. I probably have watched that gift on a loop like a hundred (laughs) times. So, but I mean, that's the thing that's so... They are like the performances that it's like those little moments that sell this slow burn like few shows I have ever watched. Right. Like there's just this like charge that was like one look and it was like one look that reverberated around the world for a full week until the next weekend that they they aired. All right. Beep, talk to me about this fangirl moment. Jury who believes nothing is real, whether it's Heijin's purse in the first episode all the way through actually being face to face with her idol gets proof that Heijin has actually met her beloved June. I don't know if you've ever been in a position that you are really adamant about proving that a child is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But I am sometimes that petty. (laughs) It's very important. (laughs) What I love about it is I love that it, sh- first of all, it is sort of the first step. The Haitian is actually taking what Chi Pong said to heart. And she is, it doesn't end with her just proving she's right. She's a 34-year-old woman, woman sitting down with like a 13-year-old girl. And they are fangirling over something that they both love. That nobody else understands, right? <laughs> it's like she's basically, it's like hey, it's like all of us finding each other on the internet, right? Like Heijin and Jury have, have now found the only other person in town that understands why DOS is amazing and why June is the most beautiful man on earth. Like, so it's just so I found it so pure and lovely that like it was just showing these two people with 20-something years between them just making a connection through something that they both love. Yeah, then they are so similar. (laughs) They're both like so skeptical of each other. Well, I mean, he's just skeptical of everyone at first. Like she's so defensive. And then Jury is so skeptical of Hazen and just like, I assume she's lying about everything for some reason. (laughs) And but then as soon as they like get their guards down, they're (laughs) <laughs> Just get along so well. It's so funny. And when he's like, I don't even think he's that good looking. They're like, whatever. He's hotter than you. Like both of them, right? They're so, it, they're like, it's so funny. And it's like so fun to watch. But when you step back, what's actually great about it is everything that's happening in that room is community, right? It's like two people connecting over something they love. 
somebody who doesn't get it, but is like amused by it is going to, you know, he comes and he, again, he's giving away stuff for free. He brings them free food. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, it's because jury needs to eat, but he's also like encouraging what's happening here. Right. It's like exactly. They had this conversation where he's like, you only have one friend. Like, dude, (laughs) you got to, you have to do more than that. And she is. And it's, you know, it's not going to be in a big group of people all drinking and talking and putting pressure on her and being like, come up with ideas for our group when she first, when she sat down for the first time because she's an introvert. But here she's like connecting with somebody and, you know, she's got a 13 year old girl who says, can we be friends? That is a really high compliment (laughs) if a 13 year old wants to be friends with you, you know? So I feel like Dushik in this scene is my boyfriend (laughs) watching (laughs) me watch (laughs) K-dramas. It's just like, he's not that handsome. I don't get it. Anyway, here's some snacks. (laughs) Oh my God, that's totally true. That's when my husband's like listening to me and my 13-year-old daughter and and he's like, okay, fine. I know so-and-so is very handsome. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Absolutely. Okay, before we get into all of the... surfing through the hands on the face scene let's save all that for the end when people will know they need to turn the volume down on this podcast and quickly cover the return of the two old loves as previewed by the song that chief hong sang the first is sort of there's multiple old loves right because we've got a very it's not even like a love triangle. It's more of like three circles going around <laughs> when it comes to Ha Zhang and Young Juk and, and Cho Hee. When it comes to Ha Zhang, now that we know that the reason why they got divorced is because she overheard him basically describing their marriage as him sort of like settling for her. Talk to me sort of about how rewatching these scenes when she's so happy that he enjoyed her cooking that she kind of goes, she's like humming to herself and making all of this food for him. It's so heartbreak. Mm. And then that scene at the end where she's just standing in front of her refrigerator, just like throwing all that food back in inside and just standing there looking so defeated. Like, my heart just breaks for her. I know. And I, I feel like this is my one quibble with the drama, is this love triangle. Because it was right there. The lesbians were right there. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll admit I was rooting for a different conclusion as I was <laughs> watching. Yeah. Yeah. But putting aside that maybe it didn't work out, this the the ship we were cheering for did not sail. I I mean that moment with the refrigerator where she kind of leans back and just sighs. I love that the show lets moments like that breathe, right? Because on rewatch, there must be a lot going through her head because there's this friend that she hasn't seen in fifteen years, who she knows her husband had feelings for. She walks back into their lives at a moment where she maybe was like, maybe hoping that, okay, maybe if he misses my cooking, maybe like, what else could that mean? 
But now we also know that she knows what Cho, what Cho he felt for her, right? She was always cognizant of it. So it's just sort of like that moment on rewatch. At, at, at first, I when, the first time that I watched it, I thought it was purely about sort of this like, oh, right, kind of setting up like a classic love triangle and kind of like, oh, this, you know, there's a lot that I, I feel for Hajung when she's like, you know, she's aged 15 years. She's now a mother, right? Like she maybe doesn't feel like later on when she tries to dress up, doesn't feel like maybe she looks as as attractive as she used to. There's a lot of things that like as a also middle-aged mom <laughs> definitely kind of hit me in the heart about that because when things like that happen, you kind of compare yourself to the way you were, if that makes sense. So it just is, there's so much that is, this is one of those scenes where you're like, uh, you can just kind of spin forever thinking about what a character is thinking about. And it's because they they have these moments where they just kind of show that just kind of let it breathe and let it and they show a character kind of thinking about something. And now we can kind of mull around like, God, what's going through her head? Yeah, this is one of the scenes that I definitely remember from the first watch and rewatching the first four episodes there was a lot of scenes that I didn't necessarily remember. And I was like, oh, I don't really remember that. But this one I do remember. And you don't know the full story yet, or I didn't at the time, but it it still hit me in that way of just like, I don't know what she's going through, but you can tell that it's it's sad. Yeah. And the other scene that hit me in a different way rewatching was when Cho Hee is talking to Young Juk and she's filling out her like residential registration form and they you know, she discovers that he's divorced. On first watch, you thought that they were sort of setting up this like classic, at least as far as as of this episode, Mm -hmm. you thought they were setting up, okay, here's the old love from the past who's going to kind of, you know, whatever reconciliation they maybe had inched toward over the sharing of the food is now throwing a wrench into it, right? But now when you rewatch it, you realize that what's internally going on for Cho Hee is, oh, then that means Ha Zheng is divorced, right? <laughs> yes. And when she, and Ha Zheng walks in and says, oh, you're still so pretty. So he must be like internally screaming because this is a woman she was in love with 15 years ago, right? And so there's just all these layers to it that because Shen Ha Un is writing this love tri- triangle in a, this episode basically like leans in on what we're used to seeing on TV with a love triangle when really there's a lot of other things going on that we, at least as of this episode, did not expect. It is the perfect love triangle and an actual triangle <laughs> where each person has unrequited feelings for the next person in just that triangle formation. Yeah, right. You could like draw them all with little arrows pointing yeah. in different directions. Absolutely. So so it sets up all of that. And so she's going to subvert a lot of expectations because she's going to tell a story, not only that a man was in love with a woman and a woman loved a man, but that a woman loved a woman. Now, that takes us to, I don't know if we, I, I, the old love, obviously, number three is director G. I think we could call June number four because he's jury's love 
<laughs> but they walk in. Oh, we'll call them old. We're going to give Jury that respect for her fangirl crush. <laughs> old love number three and number four walk into the cafe. I have to say, and Emma, you, uh, we have all been watching TV together now for, I feel like we've been through many television shipping fandom wars. There is nothing truly on TV that I hate more than a love triangle. And yet it is a testament to this show that on rewatch, when director G walks in, I feel affection and I am actually happy to have him back on my screen. I do struggle with this type of love triangle. So I'm not as opposed to love triangles. I do like them when they they actually feel like there's some stakes and you don't know who the one person's going to choose. Where it feels like they're both viable options. And I tend to get frustrated with ones that are kind of like this one. I feel like this this is the only one that I like where it's very clear from the beginning that director she is not the guy yeah but you still like him and even though he is providing an obstacle sort of narrative as a tool it doesn't feel tiresome and it doesn't ruin his character at all like i know that we both kind of reacted the same way to the second lead in her private life Mm -hmm. where it felt I was just like, get this guy off my screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, because it was like, you're an obstacle, right? Yeah. It was just like in the same way that Director G, I was like, I know she's not going to choose you. And your whole arc is just wrapped up in her. And it's it feels so pointless. But this one made a point to it, even though he wasn't going to get the girl or at least not this girl. Yeah. He was having his own arc and kind of allowing for these realizations both in Dushik and Haitian that it really made him like I was happy to see him every time he was on screen. Yeah. And it's remarkable because he actually, if you think about it, now you you kind of had an inkling that he wasn't going to be the guy she picked because he shows up so late in the narrative in terms of actually interacting with Haitian. Right. Like he's not He's not on screen with her until, what, like two episodes from now, right? So you kind of had a hint like, okay, well, if this was the guy that she's going to end up with, then that's that's going to be some spectac spectacularly poor television writing. If that's who she ends up with at the end, right? But he still serves the purpose of, of like the trope of a love triangle because he's going to enter right as Heijin and Chief Hong have sort of hit a kind of nadir in their romantic tension because they've kind of, they've been angry at each other after this kiss. They've kind of just worked things out and then he's going to pop up. And so he's going to be a catalyst both for Heijin, but particularly for Chief Hong to kind of realize what they're feeling. But his friendships with both of them are so important because we learn so much about Heijin through him, as does Chief Hong. He's going to learn oh, she didn't have, I gave her that speech back in episode two about what an easy time she must have had in life. Oops, maybe not, right? But he also is the cousin of his best friend's wife who died. Like, Director Xi was there at the hospital the night of that accident. And his colleague is the security guard's son. 
right? So he is not only a catalyst for the love triangle and and our lead couple sort of recognizing their feelings, he's the catalyst for Chief Hong facing his past. So he's so important to the narrative, not just because of sort of the romantic storytelling, but with the long-term mystery of what happened with Chief Hong. But he also has this really lovely friendship with Chief Hong where they're going to give each other really wonderful advice for both of their sort of like romantic relationships. And he's going to have his own slow burn with a television writer who I, I feel like that's like Shin Ha-un being like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take love triangles and I'm going to have the second lead end up with a TV writer. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, he is so integral to both Haitian's backstory and Dushik's backstory and him inviting his sister to town. Isn't that the way? I, I don't remember quite how the plot turns out, but oh yeah, kind but- of shows up in town, right? And then that allows him Dushik to kind of get his closure. It's just like the coincidence of all that. Yeah, because and he, you know, he is he is somebody who kind of listens to he gets to know Chief Hong, right? And they have a real friendship. And I love sort of the little details. Like the way Director Xi, when he's eating with June, is so excited about the seafood. <laughs> you know, like so so if Juri and Heijin are gonna be are gonna form a friendship through their mutual love of a K-pop band, she a fundamental foundation of Chief Hong and Director Xi's relationship is they both are really enthusiastic about food. <laughs> so they kind of preview like all of that. But but because he knows Chief Hong and because they have this friendship where he basically their resolution of the love triangle is he's going to be like, yeah, you know what? I like her, but I also like you, which was like I, I want to stand up and like cheer alone in my like family room watching that. You know, he basically is going to say I was never good at trigonomic functions anyway. Love triangles are not for me. But because he knows Chief Hong as a person. He's going to listen to the security guard's story, his version of it, and kind of be like, hmm, I think there must be something more to this. And he's really a catalyst to bringing these people back into Chief Hong's life to have these very important conversations that will lead to his basically self-forgiveness. So it's really like, the way you see this episode set up both of these love triangles in a way that plays with what we are used to seeing and then what Shin Ha-un ends up doing with both of them is just really, I think, is like really remarkable. All right, let's all just take a deep breath. And I'm just going to say the surfing scene. <laughs> the surfing scene? <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm Heijin at the end of this episode and like my face is hot. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I totally forgot this one swoon award. <laughs> There's <laughs> This is officially Netflix's The Swoon as voted by fans. The thirst trap scene of the of the year 2021. Emma, any thoughts on why? Listen, there's a lot of close-up butt shots. <laughs> oh my god, we're just—I we're just—we are just not used to as Americans 
television catering to the female gaze like this. It's like a lot to to like adjust to, right? We're used to women always being the objects of the camera, right? Oh my God. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it is. It's so fun and like silly at the same time, but you're like, no, look at it. I know. It's like, I, I felt like this the first watch. I felt this like show. You know what you're doing and I know what you're doing. And I just want to thank you because as a member of Gen X that grew up with Keanu Reeves and Point Break and Dylan McKay and 90210, this is like a very specific thing that is happening on my screen right now. (laughs) It was just like I was watching with my daughter and it was kind of like this moment where I swear to God, we were like Haitian and jury. We were just like, oh my God, what's happening on the screen right now? So they just, just kept going. Oh my God. They just kept going. So we just wanted to like offer a proper homage <laughs> to the Chief Hong thirst trap surfing uh, thirst trap winner of 2021. However, I do think there's something deeper to the scene. And I, if I can pull this off without like giggling over what a thirst trap scene this is, I will be very proud of myself. But in our first pod, we talked about sort of all the connections with Thoreau, right? And obviously, this is sort of an updated, you know, 21st century version of our romanticist with a big R very much enjoying himself in the present in nature. So it's not Thoreau bathing in Walden Pond in the 1800s. Chi Fong has got a wetsuit on and he's surfing in the 21st century. But now I, once I kind of like got the like, just sort of like pure enjoyment of that scene for all that it is, I actually find it on rewatch quite moving. And that may sound funny at first, but let me explain. When you think back to where Chief Hong was in his life when he came back to Ganjin, that like dead-eyed shell of a man walking off the bus, reeling from an attempted suicide that he feels responsible for, the death of his friend who was his only new family after he would have been alone for, you know, since he was in middle school, and almost committing suicide. When you see where he is at now, the way he's pieced his life back together, all of the work that he has been doing, we now know in therapy, the new purpose that he found as Chief Hong in Ganjin, I find it really moving to watch him be able to, if this is a man, as Ha Zheng basically says at the end of the episode, lives his life bending backwards for everybody else, this, what he's doing on his day off, is basically the only thing that he carves out for himself. And so being able to see him find that piece of happiness after everything he's been through, even though it clearly is, I think, interestingly, very much focused on the present, right? It's enjoying yourself in a moment. 
And there's a lot to be said for that, right? Because there's a lot of us that are always constantly rushing from one thing to the next and are not able to do that. So there's a lot to be said for that. Now, he's a man that also is can't plan for the future, right? Because of all of his guilt. And that's the journey he has to go on. But I just, I find it really moving on rewatch when you think back to the state he was in when he came back to this village. Yeah, I had thought of it thought of it that way before but thinking of the whole ocean and water and there's definitely a lot of water themes especially like a seaside town and when he was like considering committing suicide on the bridge and maybe you remember exactly what he said but didn't he say something like i was looking at the water and thinking maybe it'll bring me back to gongjin yeah back to yeah yeah and so seeing him on the surfboard, and it is kind of like mastering the water almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it is. it does kind of make you think about a healing process where it's like you like at that point, he just wanted to surrender the water, get pulled under and maybe end up back in Gongjin. And now it's like I'm on top of the water. I'm like moving with one with it. And then. Like the whole boat analogy and that sort of metaphor, it it does all kind of feel like it ties in. It's like almost a reflective thing that he does on his day off that kind of ties into the past. Yeah. I mean, and it is, you know, what's interesting is I made this discovery the other day and I hope I hope the translation is correct. So what he's doing right now is as. It's a, it's all of the things that we said, but it is also pointedly solitary, right? So he, when he has his day off, it is completely, he spends it alone. The translation I came across on, somebody had translated on Reddit, the list that Chief Hong makes for himself, his own bucket list that we get a glimpse of at the end of, I think it's episode 14, when he's by himself writing his own list out. One of the things that he wants to do is to take Cajun surfing. I know. (laughs) I just came across that last night. Watching the first episode in the scene where she loses her shoes, she says that she's afraid of water. And that kind of stuck out to me. I totally never picked up on that before. Yeah, and she's going to end this series, you know, I mean, so many times she's playing in the water with him, whether it's in the next episode or obviously, you know, like doing the laundry or when they're engaged at the end. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's so much about water and the ocean. You're right, Emma, that sort of symbolism the show is playing with. But, you know, I think it is really interesting that, you know, this is this is all that he there's a lot in this episode about Chief Hong and his days off and the hero of Ganjin that all seemed just kind of like what was so unique about building this character, right? That on rewatch really is tinged with this poignancy because it's he's living his life because he feels like there's so much he has to make up for, you know? So, and even his day off, what he does carve out for himself is by himself, right? Like as he tells Heijin at the at when she's at his house, no, I'm alone. I have no one. So 
Yeah. So let's, we're going to kind of take things as they flowed in the narrative for each character, rather it how they were cut up to reveal in the epilogue. So let's take the surfing scene through the end. Who is the one, we saw how annoyed he was when everybody was bugging him and calling him and trying to get him to do things on his day off. Who is the one person that he answers his phone cheerfully for? Hi, Gamry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> because, you know, you think back to the bridge and her message on his phone saved his life. Like, right? There's like that layer to it. But also it's just so, you know, that's what she means to him. Everybody else in the town, he calls his family when he's speaking to Haitian. But when it comes to Gamri, she's the one person he'll pick up the phone for. Yeah, seeing that very, like, clear, because it does seem like he's so friendly with everyone and is close to everyone, but it sets her apart as, like, no, that is his person out of everyone. So, when Gamri says that there's a commotion at the dentist's office, Emma, please talk to me about the emotional journey you went on with what happens next. <laughs> that scene is pure chaos <laughs> it's so amazing <laughs> like things were happening so fast that i don't think i understood what was happening <laughs> and he comes i mean just watching Haitian slap this guy <laughs> spin kick him slap him and then all of a sudden Chief Hong is here. He's all wet. He's like barefooted. Oh my God. Like, I need, I need, I just need everyone to know that this part of our outline is in all caps. <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, I, we all lost our minds. Like, just like running barefoot in a wetsuit, running up, high kicks them like it. I mean, it is, it is basically like a sequence out of nowhere because this show has been pretty chill. You know what I mean? Like, and all of a sudden we've got Heijin kicking somebody in the head. We've got Chief Hong rushing in, like, like flying through the air like an action hero, right? Ah, oh, like, I want to, like, pause for a second and take it back before we follow through sort of what happens next. Because I think it's sort of important emotionally to kind of root where Chief Hong is at as he's running towards that. And he's running towards it, like, like Superman running towards a phone booth <laughs> to change it, right? It's a Superman. I mean, that is like, so, so, okay. Obviously, on first watch, when they, when you see that he does it and then they reveal at the end that immediately Chief Hong may assert that he gets paid to move and he may claim that he does nothing on his day off. But the moment that he hears that Heijin is in trouble, the man is literally running across town barefoot like a bat out of hell. Obviously, <laughs> why did that make us freak out, Emma, <laughs> on first watch? <laughs> because he's running like an action star in a wetsuit. <laughs> but like everything else in this show, it's like played for laughs in the early episodes. And then later on, it rips your heart out. Yeah. So let's let's like unpack all of that. So on first watch, it's a huge clue because Chief Hong, Shin Ha-un has a little bit of a veil 
in front of him for the audience. So we have to kind of rely on these epilogues, right, to kind of get a glimpse at maybe what's going on with him in his interior life, whereas we have a lot more access to how Heijin is feeling in the first half of the story. Obviously, it's a big freaking deal that on his day off, he's running to save her, right? So it's a huge clue as to how he feels about her, whether he truly realizes it or not. But this, this is a man who has taken on the guilt that he was too late to save his grandfather, that he didn't pick up the phone when the security guard called when the market was crashing, and he let his friend drive. And now he hears that somebody that on some level, maybe that he doesn't even fully understand, but he cares about, is in trouble. It like rips your heart out because why he's so terrified has a whole other layer to it. (laughs) Just like that realization and watching the later episodes when you see him like running to running into the house and finding his grandfather. And you're just like, like that dawning realization where you look back on this, the scene that just seems like oh, it's showing how much he cares about her, is worried about her. It's kind of funny. He's just like this blur in the background as they're talking about how he doesn't do anything for anyone on stay off. And then be like, my God, he must have been terrified. Yeah. And what is so crazy to me is that this scene is operating on so many of so many different levels, right? Like it is a very comedic scene. Right. It is playing with all of these tropes, but but also subverting them. Right. Because the guy is coming to the girl's rescue, but the girl also physically had it handled like she kicked him in the head. Right. Like and and then instead of the girl being the one to faint because of all the commotion, he faints. Like Chi Bong falls on the ground. Only then does Asian fall on the ground. Right. So it's playing with all of these things that we're used to have like like growing up and watching the guy coming to the rescue, it's subverting a lot of it and and kind of playing it for comedy, right? Because there's a lot of absurdity to this. Like by the time Yoon Chol and the police show up, the scene is completely absurd, right? There's three characters lying on the ground and his son's like, what the heck just happened, right? So there's all of that. But then it's like, it's such a gut punch to think about how terrified he was that this was going to be just another time when he was too late. Yeah, and I mean, thinking about where that puts him, I mean, he's obviously been kind of opening up and whether he realizes it or not that he has this interest in this woman and then immediately she's put in danger and it kind of reminds him like, oh, that's right. That's why I don't build these relationships because... Mm. it is so tenuous and like anything could happen to her so it's just like whether that makes him maybe shut down a bit more and continue to keep up those defenses of just like this can't happen because look what almost happened right yeah that kind of like how love and loss go hand in hand you know this scene you know Whatever, what what was propelling him towards saving her like that, it's also a stark reminder of that it's a risk, you know? So that, that takes us to sort of the, like, 
they're at the police station. I find it really funny that Heijin had been kind of like seeking out her crush one way or another. And now all of a sudden she's locked in a jail cell with him and he's in a wetsuit like, lying on the ground. I'm like, it's like a fanfic prompt. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And he's like, why don't you watch? Why don't you lay down? And she's like, ah, people get the wrong idea. It's like, okay, what idea is that, Heijin? Like, you know. <laughs> But he also, right, I feel like when I went, the first time I watched, I was always clocking it, but it's just so pointed now. Every time she asks him a question, how did you know it was going on? He sits up, he immediately changes the subject and he's like, get me out of this jail cell because he does not want to answer that question, right? Like, so you have sort of, you know, one of the things that I think is if this if this episode shows the way that a like community can come together and kind of handle somebody who is a threat, like as an ideal, all of the special treatment that Chief Hong gets while everyone is literally ignoring everything Haitian says, <laughs> it is also how small towns work, right? So talk to me about this yellow and pink shirt, Emma. <laughs> it shouldn't work it really shouldn't but it really does but it really does <laughs> it's so absurd like the the amount of like just the sheer confidence to put your male lead in that shirt and then everything that unfolds out is just you know it, it, i mean the show's really does comedy very well and like this wardrobe choice was inspired <laughs> okay but I, also it is very magnum pi <laughs> it is <laughs> it totally is and he's gonna basically we now have what unfolds as a magnum pi episode beat <laughs> you're right here's another scene that has multiple layers to it talk to me about the comedy of Heijin and Misung's tearful <laughs> hugging through the bars, even though the door is opened. <laughs> like friendship scene where basically their future boyfriends are hanging on every word like they too are watching a K-drama. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's like in the first episode when Heijin tells uh, Miso that she's leaving Seoul, and they have this like crying hug then where it's just like totally over the top. <laughs> and again, here they are just like hugging and bawling their eyes out. <laughs> and it's so sweet, but it is still played for laughs. Yeah, because the cops keep trying to talk to Chief Hong. And he's like, guys, I'm watching something. Like, are you <laughs> watching this? Like, right? I mean, they're just like spellbound watching it. Yeah, but I haven't seen the side of her. He's like, what's happening? Well, yeah. And the thing that on, on, you know, he gave her a lecture about, quote unquote, we live in a society and friendship and all of this stuff, right? Let's talk about what Heijin did in this episode. Everything that, everything that Misong says of why she didn't want to say something, that it was, you have a new business, like you are in the red, right? Like if I said something, how would that have impacted it? And and, and in that moment, all Heijin cared about was her friend. Basically, consequences be damned. And Chief Hong is, I mean, ev you know, everyone is watching this, but Chief Hong in particular is watching and taking this all in. The fact that she paid her her salary and her bonus, even though she's currently running in a debt, right? Like, 
he is seeing that there's a lot, again, a lot more to her than the person that was sort of the introvert that pretended to pass out drunk when they were with people earlier at the cafe. Yeah, it's just so sweet that they're both ultimately concerned with the other person. That Miso doesn't want to say anything because she doesn't want to risk Asian's business. And that's all that she's concerned about over her own, like, self in that she's being this guy's creeping around he's assaulting her basically and she's but all she can think about is the consequences of that for Heijin well Heijin is like I don't care about any of that my business can go under I don't want that to happen to you right yeah I mean it's a really there's you know obviously it's very funny when the, the music is purposefully overly sentimental right and then it kind of leads up to the record scratch of uh you guys know the doors open right (laughs) like obviously there's all of that that it's very funny but it also is substantively really a kind of like moment where you're like they are wonderful friends and this episode is like really focused on their friendship as sort of like a cornerstone of the show that brings us to unhinged chief hong in his yellow and pink flowered shirt <laughs> delivering in beeps words some magnum pi justice <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna need a minute because this scene is so wild in the performance and the giddiness and how He's just absolutely messing with the sexual predator and enjoying it. And it's like both disturbing and funny and hot. And I just don't know what to do with all of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This scene is so out there. (laughs) I feel like it's such an outlier in what you normally see from him, but it left an impression. (laughs) <laughs> like he needs a villain role. <laughs> I would yeah, love no. to see it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. And it, I mean, Beep raised in the last podcast all of the very like subtle ways that they play with sort of Cinderella, which they again do here, right? Gamri is the fairy godmother who brought the phone, right? Everyone had a part to play in bringing like delivering this guy to justice. Even an 80-year-old grandmother did stepped up and did something, right? There's also a lot of really great, you know, the women stood up for themselves, but then the men in this community from the police to Chief Hong have their back and is like, you're a sexual predator. Think about your victims. Think about, you know, how they were hurt. It is very much like a definitively on the side of women in all of these Me Too things that we are all dealing with, no matter like what country we're in, right? But I just, Emma, I just need for you to unpack with me. Why do you care? Do you have something going on with one of those women? That's right. Something huge. Oh, I don't even remember. So somehow, I don't know if I didn't notice this the first time or I just forgot about it. But what? (laughs) Gasp? Gasp. 
I like because it's so and then also the hilarious thing is right before the guy gets beat up more, he's like, wait, really? <laughs> and oh, wait, back to my shoulder because this guy's like mauling me. But like, so I, yeah, there's like, it's interesting because I've seen varying interpretations of that line. Like the obvious one is like fan, the like, oh, my God, he's basically saying out loud. Yeah, there is something going on, something huge, right? I, and I think that layer's super fun, and I think it's there, and I think it's one of the breadcrumbs, right? But I think there's something bigger, which is he. This guy messed with people from Chief Hong's community. Ganjin is his family, and if you mess with Ganjin, you mess with him, right? Like, so I think it's I think there's both the really fun layer to it, but then I think there's also this kind of like. This whole episode is kind of like a parable, right? Of like how community should work. I also think that with a guy like that, there's potentially the underlying layer that if she were taken, it would be different. Mm. Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, it's creepy dudes can be, you know, really put aback by, by a boyfriend. Like, oh, she's claimed. Yeah, but that, that, that guy's just the worst. He's the oh, uh, he gives me, oh, uh, he gives me such the creeps on rewatch. It's very well done because I really need him off my screen because he makes me uncomfortable. So then we come to the portion between Heijin and Misong, where Heijin admits the truth, admits the truth that she's already admitted to Chief Hong, but she freely offers it up this time to Misong. And she says, from now on, whatever happens, don't hide it from me. Friends are supposed to have each other's backs. And she finally tells her, you're the only friend I have. Of course, my son is like, I know. <laughs> Which I feel like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so many people's best friend would say that. <laughs> but then there's also the comment, a good friend is worth 10 boyfriends. And I think that that is it's that is so true in a in a broad sense um there's just there is nothing in life that is more important in many ways than your friends and the people that you can count on and hopefully your boyfriend husband partner whoever actually is a good friend but if not then yeah the person who's been there for you your whole life and backs you up is there's nobody more important than that. Yeah. And that, that point I think is so fundamental that, you know, obviously this show is telling this kind of like really wonderful romantic story for, for a lot of characters. There's a lot of love stories, romantic love stories in this show. But one of the reasons why we love it so much is all of these other kinds of love, like platonic love, familial love, found and biological, right? This show is scores of love stories between friends and family and romantic love. But even the romantic love, when it comes to these two friends that are having that conversation, Yoon Chol and Chief Hong both act like friends who have their backs in this crisis in this episode before anything romantic ever happens. Like, they prove themselves 
right? If 10 friends are worth one boyfriend, if you're going to have that one boyfriend, then they're like these two guys who had their backs, right? Because this scene where Yoon Chol seeks out Misong after this has all happened and she's kind of embarrassed, right? And she is kind of trying to move away from him. And he basically, like, under the cover of being a policeman, like, hands her his business card and is like, if anything like that happens again, don't try and endure it on your own. Like, that's before anything romantic is happening between the two of them. He's saying, I am your friend and I am, I am here for you. And I care about you in whatever context. I just care about your person and your safety and you. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you have the whole reason. I mean, obviously, Chief Hong is, quote unquote, the hero of Ganjin, right? But he calls Heijin after to let her know, you know, she wasn't going to leave that jail cell until this guy was held accountable, right? She had her own moment of like civil disobedience over it. Chief Hong, whether he kind of, whatever levels he's processing things or not, on some level, he also did this and lets her know because he had her back in this situation and he did everything he could to make sure this guy was held accountable and let her know, you know? So, like, I think it's kind of wonderful the way Shin Ha-un is like, you know, before I'm going to get into anything romantic with any of these characters, these two guys prove themselves as, like, friends and the kind of men who have women's backs way before they're ever their girlfriends. Yeah, and I mean, that on the other end of the spectrum is worth more than a boyfriend in in and of itself to have people who are like that primarily before they're just concerned about, you know, the romance of it all. Yeah. All right. That brings us to the polar bear and the penguin's first date. All right. There's so much to unpack. You know, maybe this is a moment where you pause the podcast, take a bathroom break, get yourself a drink sit down. Just to start off, there is a deeper meaning, and we talked about a couple of podcasts ago about the different moments that kind of going hand in hand with the doorkeeper poem, all the different ways that Heijin shows up at Chief Hong's door. The first time, she's just going to leave something and kind of walk away. Anyone have anyone th- any thoughts on her emotional separation anxiety with her very expensive French bottle of wine? <laughs> I feel like she thinks he won't know how to appreciate it. Because <laughs> she's still judging his lifestyle. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like she's just waiting for him to come back so she can tell him exactly how nice of a gift that she left him. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good point. So she can brag on it and not just leave it to himself. <laughs> him to think like oh she brought me this thing it's like no i brought you this incredibly expensive thing and that's important <laughs> but which i mean two if we're going to like give i mean expensive things mean a lot to heijin so the fact that she's even willing to give this up for chief honk <laughs> is actually a big deal right oh 100 like, but that's also yeah. why it's important yeah I mean, I, I love also, like, I, I noticed at rewatching it this time that it's like this very kind of elaborately wrapped, but maybe kind of impersonal fruit basket. And then you think about later sort of the bag of tangerines that she leaves for him and sort of the contrast there of like the meaning behind it and how well you know someone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, but 
what I think is so funny is now we know that he's watched, he's sitting there watching this entire thing. Like, he says, I enjoyed the monologue. I felt so many emotions <laughs> in a short time. <laughs> apart with this bottle of like Coach Jerome. <laughs> she looks like a crazy woman. <laughs> and he just sits there and like lets her just do it before he walks up. Like, oh, I want to see where this monologue goes. The rest of this episode is, are some of my favorite scenes in the show. And a lot of it is there's all the layers of like what we didn't know and what we now know, of course. It also is setting up so much of the way all of their journey to intimacy plays out because she's the one who's asking questions. She's the one that like keeps finding reasons to stay and kind of like asking for reasons to stay. And he wants her to stay, but also in the conversation, he's playing defense a lot, right? With like a lot of the questions that she's asking. Talk to me about the set design of Chief Hong's house. It's so cozy. I would like to live there. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I have never seen a single man who's that clean, just in general. <laughs> yes, True. I'm calling people out. <laughs> it's so minimalistic, though, and simplistic while not being sparse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, his house, the set design for his house is like an extension of the character. And the way they kind of, they, they let us see little glimpses of it when he was home alone at night in the last episode, but, but it was kind of in darkness. We couldn't really see it. So we explore the house and learn things about him as Heijin does, right? Like we see all of the jars that he's fermenting, all of the cameras, all of the photographs that are on the wall, all of the books. And the books, as she's going through sort of the bookshelves, and he gives this kind of BS answer, oh, I collect things because they'll be worth money. And it's like, whatever, dude. You're reading. Like, he's constantly reading, right? But what I think is so interesting is that so many of those books the show uses as hints to his character or his an emotional state, right? Like, we've already seen Walden. We're going to get the poem, The Kiss. We're going to get Tolstoy, What Men Live By. We're going to get the poem, The Doorkeeper. He's literally and figuratively keeping secrets inside those books. That's where she's going to find the photograph of his friend who died. And so there's so much to discover about him and in these objects. And it's like a really meticulous set design that's like an extension of the character that we're going to continue to discover things about him, right? Like even when he chooses to open wine up for her or make wine for her as sort of the first hint that he doesn't even realize that he is planning for the future, right? Are all tied up in these objects in his house. And this is sort of like our first introduction to it. Well, his cabin too is kind of like his mind. And we've all just gotten let, let into it a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's also like all of the obvious ties to Thoreau, who built his own house. We, he doesn't say so here. He's going to wait until he needs to kind of brag to Director G. But he <laughs> made, yeah. But he made, he made all of, he made everything. He's like, everything in this house I found or I built, I designed the whole thing myself. It is an extension of his mind in that it really shows us not only his talents, but his intellectual curiosity, right? Like, 
there's there's like these objects of curiosity like all over the room. Everything that he's interested in, it reflects all of his interests. Like it's the house of like a Renaissance man, which is basically what he is, right? I love that no matter what he's been through and how strong he is, he's going to brag when he isn't secure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He's still a dude. <laughs> so human. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't brag here to her, but when when she's there and Director G is there, then he's going to need to brag about all of it. Yeah. She finds the grandfather's photograph. There's a lot of layers here, right? Because that photograph is also, of course, inextricably tied to like her day in Ganjun. Talk to me sort of about this first scene where she's asking questions and we learn when he lost his grandfather and that he's an orphan, but sort of the the uh, the empathy she shows and the way he has like a wall, if that makes sense. Well, I think that, I mean, even though he throws up a wall very quickly, this is the first time and the first thing that he reveals to her. He's been so standoffish, not in a mean way, but just, you know, always changing the subject. So, yes, he's still going to. But even saying that was my grandpa and he died in middle school, like that is huge for him. To an outsider, nonetheless. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because if you think about it, the grandfather is this gateway to him opening up to her because... The first time he's ever going to open up about anything after the attack, it's going to be about his grandfather. And then he's going to let her into the memorial service. And that was also how his best friend, like how he connected with his best friend, was through remembering his grandfather's memorial service. And so it's like it, it's like this connection to the past always kind of being this gateway to future human connection, either with his friend in college or her. And th- there's a lot that the show does, both with Ha Zhang and her son, and kind of showing that community is also who mourns with you and, and who is going to be sad with you and be there with you at a memorial as much as like uh, celebrations. But it's interesting because the grandfather's the f- always the first way that he opens up to her before he's able to open up about the more you know, traumatic things that happened after. Yeah, it's like a, almost like a starting point where he can kind of get at some of his pain, but that's a bit less traumatic than the events in Seoul, which is obviously he feels a lot more guilt over and he feels, he feels guilt over the grandfather, but in a less traumatic way. So it's like he can kind of reveal some pieces of himself without breaking self by opening up the door that much. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Jin is really interesting, too, because she's, we're going to get to it in a minute, she could be really haughty and condescending. <laughs> but her instant empathy when he says, I have no one, and the way she's like, I'm sorry, and what must be going through her head because of what who she's lost in her life, right? So if you if this is one of those moments where you're thinking, now that we know everything about a character, what's going through their head, 
if she is still this wrecked over losing her mother, she's like, oh, my God, he's lost everybody. You know, like if anybody could understand at least a portion of that, it would be her. So so this scene, the, all the way all these scenes unfold, as as you we were saying, is sort of this like preview of their kind of stop and start. It, it lays out a lot of the obstacles, both his reticence towards intimacy, but also her issues with class and money. So talk to me about, let me explain what decanting is. It's, the, it's really embarrassing for <laughs> It's so bad. I love that he lets her explain. <laughs> He's like, this is going to be good. Yeah, he, he loves to let her dig a dig a hole. <laughs> yeah, he just lets her do it when he just puts his head in his hands and it's just basically like, oh my God, are you, are you, is this all this happening out loud? It kills me. Like, <laughs> she's so, and he knows that half of what she's saying is wrong. Can you imagine even saying to someone, let me explain what decanting is? Like, it's so condescending. And she, he has just said to her, don't judge a book by its cover. And then she proceeds to be like, oh, well, you're a country bumpkin who would have no idea what wine is. And he's like, yeah, no, actually, I didn't decan it because it's old. So that's not what you do with a vintage that's old. Like, it's so, when she snorts the wine, Emma, were you able to rewatch that? Or did you have to also fast forward that? <laughs> I didn't rewatch that. It was painful. <laughs> but it's like, he feels so bad for her because she wants to to show off a bit. And she just like snorts wine out her nose <laughs> in front of a guy she likes yeah she's pouring the wine and he's like whoa it's like flashing out of the thing it's just like oh that's so painful like you want to look cool like you're this worldly person that knows all this stuff and he's just like what do you do <laughs> yeah. oh my god it's so yeah, but that there's been trips over her own confidence. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's also huh, like it, it. She really humiliates herself, right? But it's like the you're just like, oh my god, you are you are totally humiliating yourself because you're being condescending. But this is somebody he, she also likes, right? So like, it's just so excruciating. But then. What I think is also interesting is that this is somebody who who putting on those airs is so tied up in sort of like her journey of self-worth from now that we know everything about what happened, like what her experience was in college. She's really got to kind of like unpack the difference between enjoying and appreciating beautiful things and buying that for yourself because that makes you happy versus doing it because it impresses other people. A hundred percent because she's she kind of exists in this space where she just wants to make sure that she does everything so that nobody can ever make those types of comments about her again or see her the same way that she was seen in college. Yeah, yeah. And and, and then it also, though, is a preview. There's a lot of little details threaded into this episode, but there's there's some important things that come up that are going to be sort of like significant obstacles that they have to work through 
which he's like, you barely make a living. And he's like, okay, well, like, don't worry about me. You know, like he's, he's, he's comfortable with how he lives. And then she's like, I guess how you live your life is none of my business. But they're going to circle back to this topic again and again and again until they kind of reach their like balance when she understands why he lives the way that he does. And she kind of has to go on her own journey about career and like what are the trade-offs and what's worth it and who do you care about impressing and things like that. But it previews like a a lot of that. Well, at the same time, one of the things that I caught on rewatch when she's, you know, when he tells the whole story that he's sort of like the hero of Ganjin, right? And then he's like, I gave away the money to the senior center for them to buy like a new refrigerator, right? She gives him, she lectures him and is like, well, if you're financially insecure, you shouldn't be giving money to charity. Meanwhile, that's what she was doing. Do you remember when Misan lectured her that she was giving money to charity when before she'd even opened the clinic and she was like in debt? So yeah, after of, she lost her job, she wouldn't let those donations cut off. Yeah. So I, anyway, I think it's, there's like, a lot of things that are laying out what what is what are these differences that they have to work through while also subtly pointing out that they also like have other things like in common. It's really funny. She's quite flirty in this scene, don't you think? With the like, are you going to sing for me? And he's like, go home. <laughs> like, <laughs> which kind of reminds me of later on, like when she's like, oh my God, how much do you like me? And he's like, hang up. Like, that's how he's going to deal with her flirtiness. So talking about montages that on first watch were hilarious. This, why he won the Brave Citizen Award twice on first. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about that, Emma. (laughs) It's so silly. Just the music that's playing and him running down this guy and then he like tackles him and then eats some more of a snack. <laughs> Eating the chips is so great. <laughs> I don't like the train. It's just like seeing that guy totally passed out the middle of the train tracks. You're like, how'd that guy get there? <laughs> it's like I'm going to date myself, but it's like it feels like it's out of like a Mighty Mouse cartoon or like a classic superhero thing, right? Somebody's tied to the train tracks. There's a robber, right? He like bounces off the wall. Like all of it is like so comedic. But then you're like, why does he feel he th- the like deeper thing of why he feels compelled to do all of this is actually really gut wrenching, you know? And like this whole hero of Ganjin, the way everybody calls him that, when you think about how when he's going to get literally punched in the face by his past in front of his whole community, and that like Chief Hong mask is finally going to slip off. You guys have any thoughts or feelings about <laughs> any of that, like on rewatch? Because he's like, yeah, I do all of this stuff. And she has like, she's asking him all these questions, but she's just sort of taking it at face value. But she has no idea like what's actually motivating all of it. All right. You can see she just like can't figure it out. And with that's the same position that we were in watching it the first time. <laughs> You're just like, this guy is so weird. I <laughs> And you you don't know why he's like this. You could tell there's like some deeper thing that's bothering him because so defensive. 
and he doesn't answer any questions, like acts like a hero, and you're just kind of trying to figure out what's going on in there. Yeah, and I think it's I what I think is so such a punch in the stomach is that he has these like citizenship awards. Everybody calls him the town hero, right? Like you've got people be like, he's like our own Superman or Iron Man or whatever. What he thinks about himself is, you know, he has nightmares basically like you don't deserve to be happy. Like he, his guilt and what he thinks about himself is the opposite of this hero of Ganjin that his whole village thinks of him as. Yeah, and and I think that he thinks... If they knew, they would feel the same. And that is a, a constant fear that he lives with. And part of why he's never expressed what's going on. Obviously, it's hard and he holds it all in. But because he so deeply believes in all the stuff that he's, quote unquote, responsible for and carrying this guilt around, there's also kind of an element of needing, needing to keep it a secret because he at least feels somewhat normal with the way that they view him now. And he feels like if they were to find out everything, then they would view him exactly like he does. Yeah. And he also, the show will pay down those stakes because both the security guard's son think he's the opposite of a hero. He calls him a coward, right? And everyone, everyone around him, when he, all of these tragic things happen, blamed him. Right. So it's not it's not just that he thinks this about himself. He has heard it from multiple people that he's to blame. So so there's just this like real, really tragic layer to what was initially presented as sort of this kind of like, you know, if you're Heijin, it's like, well, no wonder you want to kiss this guy by the end of the episode. Right. I mean, he's just explained how he's like, you know, he's done all of these like heroic acts and stuff like that. And it's like play for comedy. But but when you get back, as always, to the root of why he does what he does, it's just like a real gut punch. And there's just these really deeper kind of tragic layers to the status quo of his life. They get increasingly more drunk. I think it's very interesting that the extrovert gets quieter when he drinks and the introvert gets louder and chattier and, as we'll see in future episodes, running all over the town when she gets drunk, right? They kind of have, like, the opposite reaction to drinking with their personalities. And the other thing that I think is interesting is he kind of gave her this lecture about you need to live in a society, you need to have other friends. So she starts to, like, once she kind of has this liquid courage, she starts to like open up to him and she says I, that she hates being drunk. I hate being vulnerable and being more honest. When I feel close to being drunk, I clench my fist tight like so. Do you guys have any thoughts sort of about her character and how honest she is about herself? I think Cajun lives in a lot of fear. Fear that Kind of like him in the fact that he absorbed everything that, you know, everybody had told him about being a coward. So I think there is an element of fear to her character where she thinks and she does everything she can to counter the fact that the people in college might have been right about her. Mm -hmm. That there's there's definitely a sense of insecurity there, too, which she uses, you know, an, an overwhelming confidence and worldliness to try to combat. 
Also, it's very interesting that he actually doesn't have any friends in a real way. Mm-hmm. So every, yeah. almost everything, in fact, that he tells her is sometimes contradictory. Yeah. I mean, he he said, I mean, I find it so ironic when he when he says, you don't know yourself. You, you don't appear to know yourself as well as you think you do. It's true for both of them, right? Because like we're watching them go on this journey where they are acting towards one another in a way that you're like, you guys are not self-aware as to what is motivating you, <laughs> right? So like do many of these things. What I think is also interesting is she says that she hates to be vulnerable, right? And being, you know, it's interesting. Everybody was like drinking at that meeting and they all knew each other and, you know, drinking and losing your inhibitions, right, is being vulnerable in front of people, especially people that you like don't know. The only people that she gets drunk with are Misson, Chief Hong, and Director Xi. And that struck me <laughs> as I was rewatching, like we were joking around, sort of remember beep, like first pot, like Heijin gets drunk a lot. And then I was like, wait, but she only gets drunk with people that she trusts. And so it's actually a sign of her trust for him that she's even letting herself stay here. Like she wants to stay here when the wine runs out. She's like, okay, but what if, you know, they both want to find a reason for her to stay, but she also trusts him to be in a state that she normally is uncomfortable being in around other people. Well, sure, because she at least has a level of self-awareness where she knows what that does to her, which is demonstrated by that dialogue. She knows she's going to be out of it, vulnerable, more honest, all those things. So she can only let her be that, you know, let herself be that way with certain people. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's a lot about that that is about control and sort of that imagery of a clenched fist when he says you live such an exhausting life with such a small fist. All of the lists she makes and the plans she makes. And, you know, I'm somebody that plans for 99 years. All of that is like because you want planning is because you want to exercise control. And it's really interesting that that is how somebody who lost their mom and grew up now tries to like control risk in her life, if that makes sense. No, totally, because she never had it growing up. Yeah, she like raised herself basically because her dad was not doing well. Yeah. When she says to him, right, her inhibitions are kind of lowering. Don't you get lonely living here all alone? And he says, no, Ganjin is my family. He is lonely, but he tells himself he's not because he's surrounded by people and that he just kind of dives headfirst into the community and gives every part of him away. But he is still really lonely. And you can tell that by, like you were saying, that when he drinks, he gets a lot more quiet, reflective. And when Haitian drinks, she kind of gets a bit more bold. And... It's more of like their truer selves. Like Hajin loses that her some of her spikiness and the defensive defensiveness that she has in her fear of interacting with people that they're going to look down on her. She's more open to being honest and having that sort of dialogue. And for him, he he's just kind of left with that kind of sadness when you strip away that front he's been putting on 
of I'm happy Chief Hong. I'm here at your service. And here's just just kind of sad guy that's thinking about all the things that are haunting him. Yeah. And there's also this piece to it that is, even if we took just what we learned from him in this episode, he has been on his own since he was in middle school. So that means his grandfather died. I mean, you know, early, early teens, right? 12, 13. And other than his relationship with his brother, you know, kind of his found brother in college, who he then lost again, right? It's almost like he doesn't even understand how lonely he is because when he gets sick and he's kind of like, why are you here? She's like, don't you understand how lonely it is to be sick mm. when you're alone? And, and he doesn't actually feel when he actually articulates, remember when she comes to his grandfather's memorial, after she leaves, it's getting used to having her there that then he misses her. Or when she goes away for three days and all of a sudden he's sitting in that house and it's defined by her absence. Whereas right now he's been alone for so long, he just doesn't even realize the difference. Right. It's her presence that's abnormal. Right. And thinking back for a moment to his grandfather. So he died when he was in middle school. Obviously, Dushik owns his home, you know, as it was passed down. I know that he's made comments to Gamry about, you know, you fed me, you kept me going. But are we to assume that he kind of lived there by himself the whole time? Yeah, I think he's been on his own for a very long time. I mean, because Gamry, obviously he told Gamry that, you know, you fed me, you kept me alive, those types of things. But it seems like in the sense of actual just physical presence that he's been alone for like over 20 years. Yeah. Right. So it's, I mean, that's what's so kind of heartbreaking when she's like, don't you get lonely living here alone? He's 35. He's been living in that house alone for over 20 years. Like, or alone in soul. So it's just a lot to, there's a lot of layers <laughs> to this conversation. So she starts what I find kind of really such great foreshadowing about what a struggle it's going to be to kind of get under this guy's shell or armor. She asks him, how long have you lived in Ganjin? He's like if you had a really great deposition witness where his answers are true, but only answering exactly what has been asked and not offering anything else. Right. <laughs> right? Unless you ask them only. Right. Since birth. Have you ever left this place? Pause. I have. Period. <laughs> when? And then it just shuts down. Like, right? Nope. You told me not to cross the line. Why are you asking so many questions? And it's such a deflection and it's like such a preview of everything that they're going to struggle with up and through episode 15 that it's like almost it's like so much on rewatch. Do you know what I mean? But I think it's like really interesting. What are you what are your thoughts about Haitian? saying that she she always says that she's the person that doesn't like lines to be crossed. And yet with him, she's the one that's always pushing the line. I'm honestly not sure that she realizes she's doing it. 
because she's so like just as she says fascinated just she's just drawn into doing it yeah yeah i don't think she's like purposely you know thinking to herself i wouldn't want to be asked that like i think she's just so needs to break open that nut <laughs> that she caught oh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna leave it i'm gonna leave it <laughs> I don't. I mean, I just don't think she even realizes that she does it. She's just that fascinated and interested, and like this is a puzzle she has to solve. Yeah, and she's like, I'm not usually like this, right? Everything about the way she's acting, like her Misan, the next day is going to be like, this doesn't sound like you at all. Like the fact that you kissed him, right? Like that is not. Oh yeah, right. She hasn't had a relationship, what, I mean, probably, it sounds like, since college. And she's, like, 34. Yeah. So I don't even think, I mean, looking back at the way she was then versus now, I don't even think she knows what she would look like in a relationship. So she's actually starting to lay the groundwork for that without even realizing it, because I don't think she's necessarily looking for it. And she certainly doesn't, you know, actively think right now that she's feeling that way about him. So I think we're just seeing how she would act if she had a crush. Yeah, I think we're we're just seeing how, and this plays out through the entire drama, that they both obviously have their their past pain points, but Haitian is much, she's going to be the one that kind of moves past that first. And she's the one that kind of reckons with that first. And then like the first half of the drama is kind of, healing back her story and then it really takes Dushi the entire time past history and so it's like she has these hang-ups this is not the way she normally acts but she is much more willing to kind of follow that instinct of like i just want to know what's going on with this person and she's willing to kind of act out of line that way where he is still resolutely like nope <laughs> yeah I think it's really, it's so well thought out the way that this, like, we, how did I put it? We, we see a lot of love stories on TV, right? But the way this is written is so digging into the details of this push and pull that's about intimacy and getting to know people and that that journey continues even after you've admitted that you like each other, even after you've said, I love you, right? That intimacy, people sharing their innermost hurts, insecurities, fears, things that have happened to them, that that is a constant journey, even if you have the big questions about whether you love each other or not answered. And, I, and not a lot of TV spends the time with that. Right. It's kind of like I, if you get the I love you, that's kind of like often where the story ends or they are like, uh oh, we need to make it exciting. Let's break them up. Right. Like so. But but uh, but so much of this struggle with intimacy is so organic to the way that they've constructed the characters. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like it's not some like BS obstacle that's like coming out of nowhere. This is like fundamental to like what has happened to Chief Hong that he is going to find it so difficult to open up and he's really like I also find it really refreshing that it's the woman who's the one that's constantly 
initiating the next step of intimacy. So whether it's the first person who kisses who, who confesses to who, who proposes, right? Like who brings sex up first? It's always her. And that's, I don't feel like we always see that on TV. No, definitely not. And I think, I think he's just reticent. I mean, I don't, I don't think, and we haven't seen, now we could speculate one way or another. I don't know what canon looks like, but we haven't seen him in any kind of relationship. And because of what he's been through, I have no problem believing that he has never been in one. Yeah. I mean, there's so many firsts that happen between these two. Yeah. And that's why part of it, I think, when they get together, seems very juvenile. Because they're like... Just like teens and they're teenagers. I mean, they're like just giddy little goofballs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've, they've been, I mean, they've been, they're so profoundly lonely. So they are just very lonely and sad doesn't, sad seems like an insufficient word. But, you know, like, it's like the first time either of them have had something really joyful happen in their lives in a very, very, very long time. Well, if I may use the landscape, I think that they're both kind of awash at sea. And this is the first, like, like they're each other's lighthouse. Mm. Yeah. Dang, I just typed I everything in. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And, and like, I, so when they get, I mean, and the acting, the acting from this point on in this episode is insane. Because everything is so subtle. And I love how Shin Minna, like totally conveys this like, oh my God, what am I saying out loud? But I want to say this out loud and I'm going to keep going kind of nervous, but you're opening up. Like you, when you have been drinking and you're like, I'm saying all this stuff out loud and I don't know why I'm saying all this stuff, but I'm going to keep doing it. Kind of like, right? Like she's being, she's being honest and she's being vulnerable, which she had just said are things that are very hard for her to be, right? Well, sure. But she also mentioned that she doesn't like being drunk because she knows she'll do those things, which I think is part of why she got drunk. <laughs> so she would do those things. This one's a walking conundrum some, or a walking contradiction sometimes. Yeah. And she's, she's so honest and saying like, I'm fascinated by you, right? And when she says, I guess opposites attract, his visible gulp <laughs> is so perfect. <laughs> Joanne <Jack> Clinch. <laughs> I know, John Clinch, right. I mean, what I think is also really interesting about the way the rest of this unfolds, he spends most of the rest of the scene listening and emotionally reacting. So... I think the biggest thing that she opens up, up about here is what we might consider her deepest ache, which, and we talked about the word ache so much in the last episode of the podcast. And it was kind of the overarching theme as well. She is describing the way that someone, someone's death, the day that they die, can overtake the day that they were born. Mm -hmm. And she specifically says, it feels like my mom's existence is fading. Now, what I do like thinking back all the way to the first episode is it's her mom's birthday that she celebrates. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's, I mean, that is still a very hard day for her. And that actually probably ties into this, but it seems like she, she attempts to keep this from happening. She, she wants to purposely remember her mother's birthday and 
the good moments that she can with her more so than this reality that has kind of taken her over in this grief. And I, we talked about this last time, Cece, that, you know, the longer somebody's gone, like the less you think about them and truly the less you remember them, which he will echo about his grandfather further on in. And he can only pick up on like certain things about it. And I remember having those very thoughts like about my own grandfather who now has died almost 20 years ago. And it's like, I don't know. Like, I think if I heard it, I would know, but I can't like remember the sound of his voice. You know what I mean? There's yeah. like those, those simple things. I mean, that was some with someone who was around me almost every day for 20 years. And I'm not sure. Like, I just can't. There's so many things, so many simple things that I can't remember about him. And so many moments that we spent together that I don't remember. And I think that that's, that's just kind of like a universal truth of grief, but it's something that is really, really poking at her right now, especially because it's so recent that she actually came back to Gonjin for that very purpose. Yeah. And now also, you know, she's drunk. <laughs> yeah. Granted, there's absolutely like liquid courage going on here, right? But she's also really brave and open about her feelings which is something that she always is with him and he admires about her and actually measures himself against it and finds himself wanting later on, like as he expresses to director G, right? She's so vulnerable in talking about this, right? It's like her deepest pain. And it is, it was always, you always, the way he was listening and how emotional he is listening. You always knew that something about what she was talking about was resonating with him, even when we didn't quite know why. Right. He wasn't just being a kind person by listening to her. What she said was resonating. Yeah. Her eyes are willing up. Ugh. It's like really... For both of them, it's like so beautifully acted, but it really is, it always was emotional, like, and riveting on first watch. But now that you can imagine everything that's going through his head, that he can't, the only thing he can remember about his grandfather is the way his hand felt in his, or what, how his relationship with his best friend is now defined by his death. Right. Like what everything about the way he lost his friend is defined by the circumstances surrounding it. And and like what he's thinking about, what what have I forgotten about my friend? What I can't remember how it's all wrapped up in guilt and how he died. Right. Rather than. Like beautiful memories we'll see about the way his friend, you know, shared the grandfather's memorial with him. Right. Like it's so emotional rewatching it. Yeah, every memory that he carries himself has been tarnished. And it's like he hides that picture. And I feel like that's the only thing he has to go to to be able to look and say he had a life. He had a family like he was happy, but he can't insert himself into that situation. Yeah, I mean, Beep, now that you just said that, I know this must sound obvious, but the fact that he... He feels guilt over his grandfather's death, and yet 
he can display that photograph of the two of them in his home, but he has to bury that picture of his friend in a book that nobody sees. And you would never know, you wouldn't know about it, right? Like she has to go digging into a bookshelf to find it. It's so symbolic of how much the way he died just envelops everything else. Well, he hides it in shame. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's also, I mean, obviously there's all, she's talking about this, you know, that that's the reason why, you know, he, he asked her, why did you come here? And, and the reason why she came here is ultimately the same reason he did, even though it seems very different on the surface, but she, they both lost and they both come to this place and in different ways, like help like become whole again right like it's a story of like two people healing in this place and he recognized that on the beach and now he's hearing oh i saw why she was sad and now i understand why and i can emotionally connect with it all right did you guys did you guys happen to notice that when she initially said that her face was hot his hands went to the ice bucket Yes. <laughs> uh, talk to me about that. What do you think's going on there? Is it like, is he planning it? Is it in empathy? Merely so staging it, it, an invitation, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, thinking about it. <laughs> ah, I mean, I, they play so much with feeling hot and fevers, right? He's going to feel hot and feverish when the next time she cut, right? Like they play with this a lot. Talk to me about what you two personally went through when he then put his hands on her face. <laughs> if you can. I know it's such a sucker. For the the trope of like an early moment like this, where it's like way too early for anything to actually happen, but like a drunk kiss or like a fake kiss for some reason, or and just like giving this kind of like big swoony moment that it's not going to like lead to them being in a relationship but it's just going to add this deeper layer of tension moving forward where now they've got this like i know what it's like to kiss this person now but we're still not on those terms yet and it's just like adding this angst i love it i'm going to talk about it like this adds another in crossing a line they add another layer about not crossing the line because <laughs> this yeah. is like one more thing that's off limits well, and so I mean, but also what I found so it was so unexpected, right? Like uh, a kiss, a kiss is actually a, a drunken kiss, is at which we will find out happened after, right? But a drunken kiss is actually more expected. I don't, this is like an, it's intimate, but it's also he's trying to. It's like an act of comfort. Her face feels hot. He chills his hands. 
He puts them on her on her face on her face. He's like, it is hot. And then what we will see in the next episode when they flash back to this, he said, it's better now. Which in some ways is what he always does with her, right? Like she has a problem. He tries to make it better, except that it's unbelievably intimate without being a kiss. And the camera is like firmly, like every time he's Jen has these kind of intimate moments with him that involves him touching her, the camera closes up on her eyes so that the audience is like with her in that moment. And then, of course, they show the ice melting in the bucket, which, you know, we talked about the last episode is like also symbolic of her, right? Or what's going on with them or a lot of things. But then... Talk to me about what we learned actually happened next, that she leaned in and crossed that line and kissed him. Well, let me defend her for a moment by saying he has been trying to teach her to say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's this is his fault. Like, I mean, it also, it flips a lot of, I mean, there's a lot. uh, She kisses him and he does, it's the man, it's the woman kisses the man and the man does the surprised open eye, like, oh my God, she's kissing me. Then he closes his eyes and gives it, like, gives into it. I will never know what happened next. (laughs) It'll haunt us. Somebody just, like, sink into that moment. Like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> they're spec. <laughs> Gino wrote a great one. But like, what I love is in this moment, that is what's honest. She kissed him. He kissed her back. Everything that happens after is nonsense. <laughs> and isn't, isn't none, right? Isn't honest. This is what, when she said, when I get drunk, I when I get drunk, I'm honest. When Mi Sun says, "Dude, you never are the one who's going to kiss a guy. Like you're conservative about that stuff. You right. cannot do that. What are you doing?" This was as honest as it gets. And for somebody as emotionally reticent as Chief Hong to have closed his eyes and gave in and kissed her back, that's honest. And like that is what is so. Everything that happens after this moment is just a clash of all of the things that were bubbling about class, about he puts his walls up and this kind of then clashing of points of view because of who remembers what, when, and who pretends not to, in kind of a very painfully believable way. <laughs> but, but what the audience knows is that moment, that's real. Yeah, and I I really feel for Haitian because I feel like this is kind of a pattern with him where he crosses the line first. He reaches over and, like, grabs her face, which is a very intimate thing. And it that's definitely what inspires her to lean forward and kiss him. And then that's, like, he can cross the line, but when she does it back, then it's, like, too far. Mm-hmm. And, like, even in the next episode... I remember he, in the beginning, he like leans over and wipes the food off her face. And then she tries to do it again at the end of the episode and he pulls back and doesn't let her do it. 
And it's just yep. like this constant, like he can do it, but then she can't. And then it makes her feel rejected, which is just like, ah, it's so angsty. <laughs> it's so right. I mean, he, yeah. And he, but, but also if you think about the night they had and they kissed and then he slept by her side. Right. And they had this whole, you know, like many hours of, and we'll never know. <laughs> it's like it's like we all the show blacked out and they'll never let it it will always be the fourth mystery of ganjin what the heck happened the rest of that night like right like what happened after this kiss like we'll never know right but like all of that can you imagine seeing the person the next day and they go what happened last night and then be like I- i'm not paying for your lunch you're not paying for mine we'll split the bill i, I mean it, it is I felt for him so much after this because for somebody who's been as lonely as him and keeps people at bay, the fact that she's even there at his house that like, I mean, the, the, it may not be where we want him to be emotionally, but it still is like him taking steps, baby steps, right? Towards like intimacy. But like, but then when he pretends that this never happened and she remembers it, you totally feel for her. It is just a total cluster of, None of that is, all of it is like all of the like natural obstacles that come after all of the messiness that all of this is happening, right? While they're drinking and all of the other things that are built into their clashing points of view. But what happened right here that we're watching is honest, right? Like it's them giving in to what they're feeling. I just want to bring up the fact that he's wearing tan cargo pants. And an oversized T-shirt. <laughs> and it's the details that matter. <laughs> Which is not an appealing outfit, but he makes it so. And, and yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet, Chi Pong is like rocking a almost completely khaki outfit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, he is a disarmingly attractive fashion terrorist <laughs> that is for sure uh this was i mean beep i wish that you and pirate had watched this live with us because even before we knew that this that this scene ended in a kiss i felt like my phone exploded <laughs> people lost their minds and i'm sure and i doubt anyone was even expecting it even out of that whole scene because there there honestly was so much intimacy even without that but i i mean it added to it i do think but it would have been fine without it and that's yeah. abnormal yeah and that is like that's such a good point too because one of the thing one of the reasons why i love all of this so much is that if 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 shin haun first built we have a kiss at the end of, like, whether we realize it or not. We have a kiss at the end of this scene. But everything that she did before it is establishing all of the ways that, like, Chief Hong is somebody that is, like, worthy of this kind of trust, is the kind of guy who has somebody's back. And then you have real, real emotional intimacy before anything physical ever happens. Like... She's opening up to him in a way that is probably very surprising to her. And in his own way, just by 
the questions that he does answer, the fact that he lets her stay, the fact that he kisses her back, the fact that he sleeps next to her, for him, it's monumental. Well, I would say even for the fact that he allows her to do this, to open up to him, because I doubt that's something that happens very much to him either. He wouldn't want anybody to get too close to him. You know what I mean? He has pretty surface relationships, I think, in both directions for the most part. Yeah, like her, her, his instinct when she said, do you have questions for me? Was no, I don't have any. Then when he saw that she was disappointed, he's like, okay, fine, I'll give in. And of course he has questions. Like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, his initial inclination was don't go there. Don't ask questions, right? Because that's crossing lines and he's full of it because he's just as much of a hedgehog and he has the lines that he doesn't want to cross either. All right, Emma, this was so fun. Will you come back and flail about things in the future with us? I absolutely will come back. You just tell me when. Yay! And we're going to link all of your amazing edits. So if you're listening and you haven't been to our Twitter account, go to at TV Banshees and we'll link all of the amazing edits that Emma B did for Hometown Cha Cha Cha. And they're all a delight. Some of them kind of tear your heart out. Other ones are just, you're going to watch a lot of times over and over again. <laughs> they all tear your heart out in different ways. <laughs> I don't think you've ever made a single one that when I wasn't done, I might be smiling, but still my, my heart has been toyed with. <laughs> oh, yeah, the one that I made after the series ended was definitely an exorcism of a lot of feelings. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It's really, that's, there you have a lot of other really fun ones, but the edit, what's that one called, Emma B? Steady Waves, that's the name of the song. Yeah, yeah. so we'll link up, or you can go to YouTube, and your YouTube channel is just Emma and then B.videos, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm less acquainted with my YouTube channel then. <laughs> yeah, it's Emma B. If you want to just sit in your in your sick high feels of their kind of emotional journey with picking up a lot of the things that we talked about, go watch that video, Steady Waves, because it's wonderful. We did it. Episode four. Good job, ladies. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So next up, we have episode five, and that is where both of our hedgehogs will get pricked. We deal with the morning after and all the clashing of point of views, misunderstandings, uh, but maybe we'll also go to the beach. Until then, we hope you remember that a good friend is better than 10 boyfriends. We'll see you soon.